0: Magic Without Fears, hermetic podcast. I'm your host, Frater RC. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. I think we got you.
1: Oh, yeah, that's better. Yeah, I can totally hear you.
0: Yeah. With nice reverb. Even. Really?
1: Is that, <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's good. Leave the reverb on. <laughs> it sounds well, nice. It might It might not sound so good in the recording. I don't know. That, that could be true. Um, you might want to test it a little bit or something.
0: I, yeah, I don't know why there's reverb at all, but... It's just like a tiny bit. Oh, well, then that's just... It's got like
1: a voice of Horace effect.
0: Oh, well, okay. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll roll then. It, at least we got each other, so there we go. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. I'll blame uh, Ash and Chassan, like his magical current overloading my circuitry the other day and... <laughs> Probably something like that. I don't know. He's a pretty powerful guy to talk to, honestly. You know, you can just, uh, you can hear it in the voice sometimes. It comes through. Oh, yeah, you. totally. Actually, when I first got um, called back from, I left a message to join the Golden Dawn on an answering machine, right? And when I first got the <laughs> call back, they they didn't say my name, anything like my name was. And so I just said, sorry, wrong number. But it was the quality of the person's voice, this guy, Marcel, And I just knew this must be the call. I had waited weeks, you know, anticipating, excited, nervous. And I was like, I hung up. And me and my friends were playing uh, a pen and paper RPG called Hole, which most people haven't heard of, but is really good. It stands for Human Occupied Landfill. And it was was the good old days. And I was just hoping he'd call back, and he did. And he said my name wrong again. But I'm like, are you calling from the Golden Dawn? And he's like, yes. (laughs) I'm like, guys, get out of the room. Yeah.
1: The Natural first thing that um, the uh, the first thing that my teacher ever said to me uh, was on the phone, and it was Damien, your little twit." And uh, I was like, "Damn, that was your first contact." I was, yeah, I was. I was calling to get instructions to her house. I was coming up to uh, some event or something. <laughs> and that was just her totally her personality. The first thing she would say to you would definitely be an insult. <laughs> oh my god, that was pretty much universal. Some of us, and if you uh, couldn't handle that, you shouldn't be a student. <laughs> Not hers anyway.
0: Yeah, a lot of adepts when I was going through the grades told me uh, about trying to, you know, disparaging themselves at least enough to avoid the guru thing. You know, being anti-guru is uh, a valuable trademark, I think, of, in, of quality initiates. People who, oh, you know, yeah. people who build up the guru thing and people who actively take measures so that you could never see them
1: that way. <laughs> yeah, it's a valuable. I mean, anybody that's teaching that should be the first thing they put out, or they can just insult you, and that works too.
0: You, yeah, you would think so, and and that <laughs> actually is, sounds like a brilliant, brilliant way. I uh, see, I'm gonna use that as my excuse for calling my audience listeners motherfuckers when I was interviewing David, <laughs> David Heimsmith. Of all people, David Heimsmith, right? This holy dude. That's a holy compliment. Dude. Yeah, and, and he was like, he, he said he said something about like, something to do with my listeners. I was like, oh, those motherfuckers don't care.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's flattering. Oh, I think you called David Heim Smith. A no, bit. Oh, God. <laughs> hey, motherfucker, I'm here to interview. You.
0: I I wouldn't have done 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 it. Th- oh, <laughs> I mean, in a humorous way, if you can do it, but you want to be careful with something like that, right? You want to like, know the person. <laughs> totally crack sort, him of, up. <laughs> sort of well, we did. Uh, I do try and make guests laugh, especially like you know the more reputable, famous ones. If I can, you know, I could. Brian, Brian was pretty. Uh, You know, stern. He's he's got a stern demeanor. At least sounded that way. And I was like, I definitely got to try and see if we can get this loosened up a little bit, right? But I don't know. Yeah. So your your teachers uh, called you a twit. And who 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 was these Golden Dawn people?
1: Uh, It was a temple um, called the Raharakti uh, Temple of the Golden Dawn. Yeah, they were. um, They started out um, in. Oh, we're somewhere in California, so like outside of LA, Santa Monica, I think. Uh, and then I uh, had a massive split with the people they'd opened the temple with, and um, uh, one half stayed in Santa Monica, the other half came up to uh, south of Seattle.
0: And this wasn't um, to, this wasn't part of Zink's thing.
1: Oh no, not at all.
0: No, no this was this, and this wasn't also connected with uh, with uh, Beeman.
1: It was Beeman, yeah. Oh, Tria it was Beeman. used her her non-monastery name, yeah. Oh, yeah, what's her, what's her, what do most people know her as again? Uh, Chris Monastry, I think.
0: Chris Monastry, yes, of course, the famous, legendary, epic Chris Monastry.
1: Yeah, 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 so half the students came up, you know, with her, and the temple just split in half.
0: Wow, yeah, I I always heard she was around Seattle, but, um, yeah, you know, I I never knew much more other than what we heard uh, through the grapevine about what she was up to. So, did you work with I mean,
1: her? Oh, not, not Beeman. I worked with uh, Laura York, Laura Jennings York. Okay. Um, who is the person who split with Beeman? Um, oh, wow. So yeah, I, I never worked with Beeman um, or even really met her or anything. Yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's, d- let's call her Chris
0: Monastre. Or, or Monastre. Probably that's a good idea. Yeah. Probably, more people will know what we're talking about.
1: And if that's what she wants to be called, I'd rather right. call her that. Right. So.
0: Yeah. Well said. So so Laura Jenny's York, what's uh, what's she like?
1: Uh, she was a total battle axe. Um, and I, I don't mean that in any kind of disparaging way. Um, she was very uh, kind of militant, very intense, um, very much inspired by G.I. Gurdjieff. Um, okay. So she was always doing the best for their students. Um, she coined the phrase uh, kamikaze magic, as far as I know. I never really heard anybody else use that. Oh, awesome. Um so if you had uh, any kind of psychological block, or even like you know material plane block, uh, she would basically just launch the nukes at you, you know, um, with like Enochian and ritual and and whatnot, whatever she was working with at the time, and it would it would blow like a massive tank sized hole in your life, <laughs> and then you know she'd set about helping you like patch it up and, and get things in working order. Um, but yeah, she was very intense, um, very extremely funny. Like I I. um She's very devilish. She's a very devilish sense of humor. So we had a lot of uh, fun together. We, we tended to get along really well because I also have a very devilish sense of humor. Uh, and the more she'd mess with me, um, it didn't always work, but I would usually turn it around and mess with her back, which hmm. kind of was like passing the test. Like that was kind of what you were supposed to do. Um, instead of getting really angry, you know, and, and, and starting some kind of conflict.
0: Hmm. Sounds like um, a, but yeah, a healthy it was, it was intense. approach. Yeah. 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 Sounds like she has a healthy uh, approach.
1: Oh, absolutely, uh, and very work-intensive, which is after my own heart.
0: It's um, how it's got to tr- be, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We did a tremendous amount of ritual work, um, tremendous amount of like research and diagrams. We had to uh, write out, draw out all of the diagrams that are used in all of the Golden Dawn outer order rituals, and then at the end of each grade, she'd take all of the diagrams we'd painstakingly made and throw them in the fire. Um, certain ones would. Burn better than others. I remember specifically, like the sulfur one. All these alchemical sulfur were just like. The Why were you going. burning these things? Uh, well, because it was kind of a non-attachment thing. She always wanted you to be non-attached to your work, so she'd have you do like painstaking amounts of work, and then you know just throw it in the fire. And and the the reason for doing them, um, in this case, the the outer order diagrams, wasn't to have a set of outer outer order diagrams. Um, it was to do the work, and to in in doing the diagrams you examine them in minute detail um, a little bit of the archetype behind the diagram uh kind of sparks you, especially if you 're doing the work that's related to it mm. um so the you know the the point of it was really in doing the work, not so much to have uh, the product afterwards
0: yeah um, yeah and she was
1: just you know really into non attachment and
0: that's, yeah. that's cool. There's a, there's definitely a, always the risk that we see very prevalent these days of just collecting information rather than acquiring knowledge.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So you mentioned on uh, Praxis Behind the Obscure, our mutual friend Ryan's podcast, which is where I found you. And I really enjoyed your interview uh, that you did. Awesome. There. That was really good. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, Ryan's a great guy too. Yeah. We talk yeah. a lot these days. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool but um you mentioned um so in in that order they took all the inner order stuff and put it in the outer order which to degree to degrees some of that that's often pretty common but was it like literally all of it
1: no um it was a kind of a selection of it um yeah, I've kind of... So I, I have started a kind of one-on-one teaching order based on the same template, and I've moved a lot more of the Out-Order work into the In-Order. Or, sure. sorry, that's the other way uh, around yeah, In-Order work into the Out-Order. Um, uh, yeah, there were certain things that were in it, certain things that weren't. It, it mostly was just very um, very ritual-heavy. You uh, After the Neophyte grade, you immediately got into elemental, Sephirothic, and planetary invocations. Um. And then usually about halfway through the Outer Order, uh, Laura and her husband Peter would start you on um, more, more complex ceremonial work, talismanic consecration, invocations, things like that.
0: So that is a um, lot of inner order work in the Outer Order, yeah.
1: Yeah, the, the, whole, um, the whole thing was expanded, though, so you spent a lot longer in the entire, um, going through the entire system uh any given grade um the fastest you could go through it was about eight months uh per grade it had a very particular structure to it
0: eight months per grade Um,
1: per grade yeah a lot of people took longer than that just because there's a lot of work that you had to do in each one yeah uh i had had her material given to me by one of her students and i worked almost all the way through the outer order with minimal guidance from the guy that gave it to me um
0: yeah i heard about that that's that's funny
1: yeah, so I basically I did it twice. <laughs> it's a glutton for punishment.
0: <laughs> yeah, a lot of people do though, um, for sure. Yeah, yeah.
1: I, I don't think if you do it any other way, you're really going to end up doing any less work. Um, you know, whether you call it the in order or the out order,
0: it's. Yeah, well, you know, there's there's orders out there like I think. Ordo Stella Matutina, Sam Scarborough's mm-hmm. thing, they're doing it super traditional, where they just right. do the meditations in the outer order and and save all the other material for the inner order. I'm of the opinion that, like, the order was never meant to be considered fixed at any mm-hmm. specific point. The idea that this was the order and that's how it should stay just never made sense to me, because they were developing material all the time, right? So Yeah, I feel sense.
1: that way, too, and and it's kind of incomplete. Um, it just kind of drops off at a certain point. yeah, I, I think there's a tremendous amount of room for uh, innovation.
0: Yeah, so it made always made sense to me that you that the outer order was flushed out with stuff from the in order. Some of the stuff, to me, it made sense to keep it in the In-Order because it was connected with the five six initiation. Right. So sometimes I always felt like moving things, moving things earlier, if you then, like, you know, a lot of things you were initiated into their mysteries through the initiation. So to move them earlier might be to, you know, cheat someone out of some of the mystery or the symbolism of it but in general i think yeah it makes sense to it makes sense that the outorder grades are a bit more comprehensive and uh, less boring i mean crowley went through them so quickly for a reason it's not because right. he mastered a, a ton of material overnight it's because there wasn't much to do
1: yeah and i also kind of felt like um you know, at, at the time that I was kind of adapting my teacher's material into my own teaching system, which is, is based on the same framework that she had, um, it just kind of felt like in the traditional system, you know, you get some training and you go through the initiations, and then suddenly it's like the entire corpus of the inner order is dumped on you, and it's like, Boom,
0: A stack of great <laughs> material, like, especially, like, so in our inner order, we didn't, do the sub-elemental grades, we just right. gave the adept all that material for Zelator Adeptus Minor through Philosophus Adeptus Minor, boom, one big spat pack, and some of the material was held back, because we had developed a, a lot of our own material as well, and sometimes you just get lessons one at a time for some stuff, but again, like there's just so much to do, it's years of work. Um,
1: yeah, it's nice to have a systematic approach. Um, really nice, yeah. And then even then, you know, when you get to a certain point, certainly in the structure as I teach it, when you get to the inner order, you still get a big, like, the big boom, you know, you get a bunch of stuff dropped on you. Sure. Um, well, you, you but,
0: could take everything from the inner order, from the Golden Dawn, Stella Magistina, all of that stuff, put it in the outer order, and then still when someone got to the inner order, just be like, here's grimoires, and boom. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's, there's, well, the there's no 10, 20 years of their life.
1: And the, the out order, as I see it, it's like kind of a hand-holding. You know, you're guided through all these things. Like, here's your assignments. It's um, you shouldn't ever be in the out order and not know exactly what you should be doing. Um, whereas there comes a point, whether it's the in order or some other point in any any given teaching, where the student has to forge a path ahead on their own and take everything they learned and and kind of you know go forward with it.
0: Yeah, a lot uh, of people. And that's describe, kind of where
1: I see the difference.
0: That's yeah. A lot of people describe that as the the work of of six equals five, right? To develop your own system and then put yourself through your own system.
1: Yeah, and that could work that way too. I I just see it more as like five equals six, but it's all just a matter of how you decide to organize it.
0: Yeah, we were we we I always considered our order pretty traditional in some ways, like we didn't really acknowledge grades beyond five equals six. And I liked that. It's like, you know, once you're at a certain point, we're all just Sort of doing the work together.
1: Yeah, I, I tend to to kind of treat it the same way. Yeah, I um, think it's a
0: healthy approach.
1: You know, whatever grades grade you achieve
0: by after that, you can always that can be between you and God, right? Like, right. The last thing you want and, is people throwing grades around.
1: I mean, it's great to use to organize material and say, like, in this grade you do this, in this grade you do that. But when you get to the point mm. where there's no longer uh, you're no longer giving out specific assignments. Um, yeah, there's not really any point other
0: than hierarchy. Yeah, indeed. I I, I like that you mentioned that you've uh, incorporated uh, doing Eucharists and allowing people to in, invite others and semi-public. We were doing that actually at Temple Tehuti in Vancouver where oh, you nice. could invite people and they'd come into this massive temple and get to be part of the Eucharist and then we'd do healing afterward. And uh, I always thought that was, a, that was a good thing for an order or a group of magicians to do is part the veil a little bit to people who are curious, you know, give them a, give them a taste of what's up.
1: Yeah. It's been really nice. The people that come to that, um, although nobody's been here since COVID, just me and my partner doing it. uh, But the people before that, that were coming and hopefully will soon come again. um, We, we ended up drawing this really kind of eclectic crowd. Um, There was a guy that uh, from the Horace Mott Lodge um, that came and a, a few other people, a bunch of people from the OTO, of course, uh, but it's really fun, you know, you, you uh, charge up the wine, call forth the spirits, drink the wine, and then suddenly, you know, you're in meditation and you're half the room switching on their notepads with their pencils as the, the spirits give them kind of the info download or the vision or whatever it is that they give them. Hmm.
0: Interesting. How did, find, uh, how did you find OTO people reacted to uh, getting to come in and see the Golden Dawn style work being done?
1: Well, I wouldn't I wouldn't really characterize my work as tremendously Golden Dawn. Um yeah, it sounds it's like all you based in the a Golden Dawn. Yeah, it's um but I mean, you know, we don't we don't do things like we don't open with the Z2 formula or anything like that. Um it's it's just much more like somebody that's used to um um the kind of ceremonial magic that you would do in like the AA or or the Gnostic Mass would probably feel pretty at home with what we're doing. Uh, the only thing that really makes it Golden Dawn it's kind of the same stuff that uh, made Crowley's work kind of kind of golden dawnish, and that that was that was Crowley's background. Um, so yeah, in the OTO, people tend to people from the OTO tend to just fall right in line with it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I always wished we uh, we had a let, allowed OTO people to join our our order and our temples because we didn't, and I think it was a mistake in retrospect. At the time. I understand why those reasons were there, but I think it was a misunderstanding of the OTO as a religion rather than a magical college.
1: Yeah, my teacher was like that too. Uh, She didn't want anybody that was working with her in any of the groups. Uh, And her reason was really just because the work was so intensive. She wanted the person to be entirely focused on the work. See, that makes Uh, sense. I've I've loosened that quite a bit. For Mm. myself, it's like, you know, if somebody was in another Golden Dawn order or another ceremonial magic order, it would probably be impossible to do two bodies yeah. of work like that at the same time. But the OTO is, is totally different. Um, it's more of a, a society.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a life lifelong fraternity, and it's, it is religion. So, you yeah. know, in retrospect, it always makes me think like we were you know, we were denying people on the basis of their religion, rather than because they were working with a, in a different magical college, really. Which is, you know, why you wouldn't let someone be, you know, in multiple Golden Dawn orders at once. You don't want to go through that training in two groups at the same time. Doesn't make sense.
1: It'd be impossible. Yeah, you're like in Theoricus and One Temple and Zolotter. Oh <laughs> It'd be just schizophrenic.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, focus. And uh, focus is a big part of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. What's... uh. What's the plan? Do you think uh, going forward? Uh, you mean with teaching? Yeah, with wh- what are you guys going to do when things open up?
1: Are oh, you well, we'll start initiate there.
0: people. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because um, you still do golden dawn style initiations?
1: Yeah, yeah. We uh, we use a masonic temple um, that's not too far from where we live, and I've been in contact with them. We we, um, we have like a closet that has all of our ritual gear and everything in it. Um, and every every couple months, I get in contact with the lodge master and just make sure it's all still there, <laughs> and the masons haven't gone belly up or anything. Um, so yeah, yeah, that'll that'll start up again. We've got some initiations to do. The Eucharist will start up again. One on one teaching has been going on. It's it's just either been over Zoom or um, in my backyard when it was warm enough. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nice. Was way too cold.
0: Yeah, us in the Pacific Northwest,
1: eh? Oh yeah.
0: Yeah, we had yeah it's sn- regrettable, but I haven't been
1: able Oh, yeah, ours did, too, yeah, yeah late yeah. yesterday.
0: We got a little bit, but it's nice to have it a little bit once a year, just for a few days. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was wasted us.
1: this year. I didn't get any snow days, so I'm not going to work anyway, so oh, i no. from home. Oh, God, yeah. No, no, usually it's a good thing about snow is I get a, a day or two off work. But...
0: For sure, for sure, yeah. I mean, when I was young, the snow would cancel weeks of school.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that
0: a few yeah. times. I don't know what changed something to do with the environment, <laughs> you know <Yeah. laughs> oh, um, so when you do golden Dawn initiations, uh, are they using all the regalia and and symbolism and tools?
1: yeah, um it's pretty much pretty much by the book yeah we've we've made a couple of really slight subtle changes, but um, for the most part, it's just by the book um. Yeah, it's using cool. using largely uh, Pat Zalewski's books as our kind of guidebook.
0: Yeah, well, that's a good source. Um, yeah, y- were you did you also mention you were in you were mentioned on the podcast? I loved your phrase, a Heretical Golden Dawn Order. But that oh, yeah. were, were you referring to Manastre's group uh, and Jennings, or was that a reference oh that was to that Zalewski's. was Laura Jennings
1: York? Yeah, no, we weren't we weren't ever part of the Zalewski's group, but. Um, uh, our teachers were, yeah, my teachers were friends with them um, and had been for quite a while and corresponded quite a bit. So we we had copies of, um, we were super lucky, we, we got copies of the uh, Big Black Initiation book that Pat Zalewski had put out a few years ago. I think, I think it's been like 10 years now. Uh, and at the time, the only ones that were published were the Neophyte and the Zalotter books. Um, in fact, there's pictures of of Loris Temple in that from before I joined. Um Doing the grade signs and things like that, uh, but those those just proved an invaluable resource. Um, it was great, so I had those all on basically Xerox papers. Um, while uh, the temple that I had started um, had just started doing the uh, the initiations, and it was just just a fantastic resource. They go into so much more depth than any other source that was available at the time.
0: Really, and is this does Zaleski have those uh, that out now? All of his, all the initiations oh, yeah. in a book.
1: Uh, yeah, it's a it's a thick black book. I don't remember exactly what it's called. Um, uh, it's like the, in a bookshelf in the other room. Huh. But um, yeah, look up look up it, it should be available like pretty much anywhere, Amazon. Yeah, um, it's it's a great book. He goes through all of the different energy dynamics that he's observed through the rituals. Is it Golden um, Dawn course,
0: rituals and commentary? That's the one, yeah. Okay, I was wondering what that was, because I, I noticed it existed now, and I was like, what is that thing? Oh, it's highly
1: recommended, yeah.
0: Well, I like his writing. He put out a couple, of
1: books, yeah. he put in a couple of books for the first two grades, Neophyte and Zalotter, uh, back in the 90s. And then he just kind of stopped. Uh, I think yeah, Llewellyn stopped publishing them for some reason, uh, and someone yeah. has got the
0: rest of them. Golden Dawn wasn't very popular then for a while, I guess. I don't even know if
1: it was ever popular. Was Golden Dawn ever popular? Ever? Like at all? I don't know. Is it popular now? I don't, <laughs> I don't think so. It doesn't seem like it. I, I kind of feel like I, I kind of enjoy the fact that my my basis is in this kind of like kind of incredibly unpopular form of esotericism. Oh amen. <laughs> it's it's kind of nice. Nobody bugs you, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I know. Can you imagine if you were like in the pagan community, or part of the Wicca, trad witchcraft debates, or yeah. surrounded by or all these chaos. Yeah, if you're teaching grimoire stuff,
1: you know you tons the of grimoire people.
0: people that's that's a. I mean, that's a th- that's the thing right now, and they it they're, totally having, is, they're yeah. having some big debates.
1: And I don't want to slam them. I, I think what they're doing is fantastic. Oh, God,
0: it. no. Keep translating and giving us material, please. Seriously,
1: yeah. You know, and analyzing it and tracing yeah. the historical roots.
0: Yeah. I, I, I already I, I know enough Latin and Greek that I would prefer not to learn much more. <laughs> so if people <laughs> could just, uh, you know, who really know that stuff well, just keep translating those things, that would be great yeah and uh, I mean, well, there there are some interesting debates going on within that realm. Do you have any uh, favorite grimoire debate topics that, that
1: you find interesting? like in um, You know, not tremendously. I, the grimoires weirdly have never tremendously spoke to me. Um, I do find a lot of the work around them interesting. Uh, uh, like the work of Jake Stratton can I find fascinating. tracing back kind of the roots of the Grimoires, and, and even kind of how he has kind of observed that uh, the Grimoires are kind of repositories of, of, you know, really ancient lore. I find it fascinating, but it doesn't make me want to work with the Grimoires anymore. <laughs> um, really? I've worked with them a little bit, and they just don't really speak to me that much for some reason. And I mean, they, they definitely do to some people, and, you know, more power to them, you know. But yeah, it's just never really been my thing for some reason.
0: Well, I can understand. I, I'm only just sort of getting into them now. I sort of saved them. I figured that there was always time in life to do that, so I waited like twenty five years and now I'm just starting to get my feet really wet. Like I was trained in, in the basic stuff, doing the basic mm-hmm. Solomonic and Goweship work as an adept in the Golden Dawn. We did, you know, some you know, enough so that you could do it on your own. But right. then it's the, up to you.
1: The key of Solomon is is one that I've worked with, you know, just because it's, how can you avoid it? I mean, it's so prominent in especially golden dawn circles. Um, but as far as the other grimoires, yeah, not so much. One of the, the really valuable things that I've gotten from a lot of the research that's coming out of it, though, is it has, um, for a long time, I've had a um, a strong um, kind of working interest in the chthonic and the otherworldly. Um and the a lot of what's kind of been coming out of that has kind of given a lot of context to that for me, which um, before I, I had kind of minimal context and I just kind of worked with that that aspect of the work purely on instinct and intuition and feedback from, you know, the chthonic gods and stuff like that. Uh, and it's nice to have all of a sudden there's there's a tremendous amount of context for it now that really wasn't that, at least it wasn't as accessible before.
0: For for people listening, what how do you how would you define chthonic?
1: Uh, um, a lot of the time uh, in the Golden Dawn, you think of magic as having to uh, do with the celestial and the angelic uh, things that have to do with with up and the above. This is of course only a metaphor. Uh, the chthonic has to do with what's below, what's in the earth, uh, specifically the underworld. Um, and I don't even really differentiate between the two that much. As much as I just I, I see them as kind of the same spectrum with different emphasis. Yeah. Um, but uh I, I have found in my own working that um putting a lot of attention into uh, um into the Chthonic, into the underworldly working with underworld gods specifically in the in the context of of the underworld uh, has proven incredibly valuable and has just really enriched my my practice. Um, where I still do a lot of work, you know, angelic work and and uh, work with things that are considered celestial as well, yeah, they yeah. tend to complement each other really well.
0: I was always told uh, my teacher, when I was doing my first beginning training as an adept, he took me into the vault and he he was giving me the rundown and explaining how to work within it, and he said the most important thing to remember, because I asked about the floor, which is quite a dramatic thing to behold when oh, yeah. first uh, after the initiation, a couple of days, and I would have I stayed I stayed after my initiation for a few weeks down in L.A to get trained, like the, get a hardcore training, right. As you sort of need that when you're being sent up to be an adept at a temple. Um, so I, you know, the floor was just so dramatic to see all of this <laughs> for lack of a better word, demonic stuff that you're standing on. Cause right. it does look that way, whether you just want to, I like thinking, I like to think of it all, all as just spirits. Mm-hmm. I do. Um, mm-hmm. But he's, his, his advice was just, remember to look up before you look down, you know, there's all these angels at your disposal now, like work with those a lot before you work with the other stuff. And I took that advice and it worked out well for me, I think, rather than just going straight into the darkness, which a lot of people like to do, but I'm not sure how wise it is to just dive straight into the darkness and get into shadow work, you know?
1: Yeah. Um, it can certainly be very intense. Uh, especially, um, so, um, the, with the key of Solomon spirits, so the lesser key of Solomon, I've definitely had students that have dove, you know, dove right into that and gotten themselves into, into all sorts of trouble. Uh, oh, yeah. I, just I because saw they didn't so really many students experience.
0: lose their minds, like, you oh, know, yeah. dabbling in that shit early on, like, they're in Theoricus or something, and all of a sudden, like, you know, you go to their place and the walls are covered with, like, the seven deadly sins painted in <laughs> black paint on all of the walls of their bedroom, like, like a crazy person. And it's yeah. like, whoa. Okay, just because you learned about the glyphs of the infernal habitations doesn't mean you were necessarily supposed to visit
1: them. Yeah, what I always tell people is that uh, the lesser Solomon spirits, the uh, Lesser Key of Solomon spirits, in particular, um, they're kind of mafioso. It's like dealing with the mafia. Um, like that, I like that a lot. You need to, you need to have a kind of <laughs> some kind of authority behind you before you go and deal with the mafia. Yeah. Uh, and some of them are not, you know, some of them are a little bit less savory than others. And, um, you know, not not the most, um, well, they're not looking out for you. Let me tell you that much. Yeah. <laughs> they're not, gonna, they're not I mean, very forgiving if you make stupid mistakes often. At least that's in that. my experience.
0: Yeah. Um, you have any stories I mean, of that sort of thing?
1: Yeah. Like, I I've never personally had any problem working with them. But then I didn't start working with them until I'd been doing... Uh, occult work for well over 10 years.
0: So you were smart. Uh,
1: yeah, I, I yeah. had a couple of students one time that um, really did something they shouldn't have and got together and, and called one of them up, and they had enough experience to make the operation basically work. Um, but one of them decided to reward the um, the spirit they evoked by doing the middle pillar and projecting the middle pillar energy into the triangle. Like... The only thing I can think of maybe worse than that is like cutting yourself and giving them your blood, which is just the absolute and uh, never, ever, ever do thing. And that didn't that didn't work out well for them. Um, and in that case, I had to call up the spirit and, and cut the cord with one of them. And uh, it, it wasn't anything that caused any permanent damage, but yeah. definitely made things very difficult for one person for the better part of a week.
0: It's a strange thing to think that you could be working with these spirits or spiritual forces and that your mind, your consciousness could become heavily influenced or even arrested by those forces. I mean, it's so subtle and psychological and borderline ima- imaginary. <laughs> can we call it imaginary in a way? It, it, that's a double-edged sword, right? Cause it's, it's just imaginary, but it's also imaginary. And these things can affect you to the point which your free will sort of uh, is less than you'd like it to be.
1: Oh yeah. Oh, I'm of the school it's more than just imaginary. I mean, I've, oh, I've seen enough physical effects.
0: When um, I say that, I, I always say it like that because I, I went to Waldorf school my whole life. eh? so um, so for me, Rudolf Steiner's view of the imagination is what oh, yeah. he, he treats it as a as a perhaps the most important human muscle, and, right. and the entire system treats it with a tremendous respect. So. Um, yeah, for me, the imagination's always never been a small thing,
1: and oh, that totally makes sense. Yeah,
0: yeah, what um, you imagine has an impact on your life, and uh, if if not, the ability to create actual doorways that science just doesn't yet understand to realms that are just as real, if not more real than this one. If I mean, if you're in doubt of that, take some DMT.
1: Yeah, <laughs> right. The nice so, thing about DMT is it wears off so fast. <laughs>
0: Hallelujah. Yeah. Um it's it's even though the though, you know, 20 minutes in a place you don't want to be can can be pretty bad.
1: Actually, I've never done DMT. I've done Selvia a number a number of times though. I look forward and, uh, to doing that. Uh, yeah, Selvia is intense. So for a long time, I done Selvia a bunch and I thought that DMT would be far more intense. Uh and I was like, man, I don't know. I don't know if I want to do something more intense than Selvia. And more recently, I've kind of, in talking to people and even looking at, like, internet memes, I've started to kind of find that a lot of people consider Salvia to be far more of a terrifying experience mm. than DMT. And I'm like, oh, thank God. <laughs> like, maybe I could do DMT. Yeah. Because um, the me... Salvia experiences I've had are, are very, um, yeah, they're they're intimidating. They only last for, like, 15 minutes, but...
0: Yeah, I think salvia might. I don't know. I don't even. Maybe there's no point in even speculating. But I think it might be more similar in in shockingness to five meo DMT, which is sort oh, yeah. of shoots you straight up. My 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 opinion on five meo is that it it shoots you straight up into the Soph and like you just like projected straight up the middle pillar, and boom, scintillating infinite white light. Hence, potential ego death, if not necessary ego death. You know. You don't realize why you're there. You forget that you're there because you smoked a thing, right? That's my favorite. It's always, I thought, the best definition of ego death. It's when you're in a place and you don't remember that you're there because you just smoked a thing.
1: Sure. Yeah, there's no you.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. concept of
1: self is just gone.
0: (laughs) Yeah. um, I've I've only done 5MEO once, though, so I just had that one experience. And I was actually very chill in that realm. I was like, oh, yeah, I know this place. This is... Like, and I, uh, my friend actually thought that it meant I hadn't done enough, but I was like, I think I was there. I just think that, you know, 30 years of doing these rituals made it, made, possibly had a, an effect on how comfortable I was in that, that place of annihilation and divine brilliance. Yeah, that would make sense. I mean, it would make sense to me. So, you know, I thought it was a little silly to assume that because I was comfortable in a spiritual realm, it meant that I wasn't actually there. Um, But whatever. Who knows? I'll do it more, and I will find out. it's, It's legal in Canada, so amen. Oh, nice! Yeah, right. The impression oh, yeah. I get
1: is that if if you do salvia, you're definitely there. There's no argument.
0: I wanted like you can salvia. drop
1: acid and fake it, you know. Yeah. Um, but, uh, <laughs> or do a DMT. I mean, DMT or salvia. Yeah. yeah. DMT more than salvia because if you're smoking salvia, it can be hard to get enough. Um, Every time I've tried, I've, I've is never DMT, gotten enough. You're definitely there. Yeah.
0: I've I've smoked two whole bowls of of salvia and gotten nothing but a sore throat for two days.
1: Oh, I've known it that uh, that happens yeah. with some people. Yeah,
0: I, some people are more sensitive to it I've than others. Tried many things. times over ten, last 10, 12 years, and never had any results from it. Um, I think it's just because it was a weak plant or wasn't, uh, you know, purified enough or whatever. Um, but you know, the yeah, thing about DMT, I'd like to say, since you haven't done DMT, is my The reason I love it so much is because to me it's like you're actually physically in the astral plane, so it's not just you're not just going to one place it's like it's actually putting you in multifarious, colorful creative realms of these beings and like there's I've just seen such a wide variety of realm and a wide variety of interactions with different beings, both divine and terrifying and uh, I think it's really this uh this amazing chant uh, opportunity for magicians to explore. I think it's the astral plane. I think we're physics. That's where, and it's just, yeah, it's more chill. It's like you can almost operate within it.
1: Hmm. Yeah. And Salvia, what I got is it's, it's a very similar thing, just completely out of body. Yeah. Uh, and I've got something that a lot of other people I've talked to get too, where there's a feeling of being chopped up by like metal blades, except that it doesn't hurt, which is oh. a very interesting sensation. Um, a really interesting massage or something. And then you're suddenly in this place, and you are a bunch of beings that think it's hilarious that you're terrified of them, and they continue to make fun of you until you're no longer there anymore. Uh, And then the next time you do it, they're like, "Oh, you're back."
0: Yeah, (laughs) this is really fun.
1: Uh, So it has that very intimidating—not not not malevolent at all. I I never felt anything malevolent from it, but it's very intimidating. But what I got out of it, what I—the benefit that I found from it was. I felt like, okay, i have been doing... I, when, at the time that I did it, I'd been doing occult work steadily for about 10 years. And I thought, wow, this is, this, this is a great thing to show me that I don't really know the first thing about anything. Like, the, <laughs> the experience I had was so completely different than anything else I'd ever experienced. Um, yeah. And the times I've done Selfia since, it's been kind of the same thing. It's like... Um, it's just good to have that reminder that you know, no matter what you're doing, um, you're really experiencing a tiny spectrum of the, the potential... Um, for experience
0: absolutely
1: do you think science
0: do you, do you think science is going to make any leaps and bounds into these liminal realms in our lifetime oh
1: I don't know uh, that's a good question
0: I'm hoping um, we will with the perception of dark matter which is we're just on the verge of doing
1: yeah maybe that was something that man, my, my teacher Laura and Peter to her husband they were obsessed with that they were always reading about dark matter yeah and, Quantum physics. And I was always like, oh, let's talk about Enochian instead. (laughs) I was always trying to get them into these other things that I was obsessed with. It's Um, like, hey, man, I I can't
0: do anything with quantum physics, but I can do Right, exactly.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You can't do a dark matter ritual unless you do Enochian and call it dark matter.
0: I'd love to talk about Enochian. So I finally got a chance to do some Enochian work. At John Dean, and Edward Kelly's Tower in Prague the other year. Oh, nice! It was cool, and it's I, I I did the I was doing the Call of the Portal in the 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 small at the top of the stairwell with all the windows that overlook the city. You're not meant to normally be allowed to go up there, but it was unlocked for some reason. The trap door was unlocked, and the guy was like, "Well, it's open, so I'm not I can't stop you." I'm like, "I love <laughs> <Crazy>. Prague. <laughs> I love Prague." So I ran up there and uh, whipped out a, a recorder and 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 filmed myself doing the Call of the Portal. And halfway through it. I felt this like thunk on the, like the back of my head, you know, right, right in my cove center. And I stumbled over the words and you can see me do it. And it's because they were so present. And what they said was, you don't need to do that here. Hmm. Isn't that trippy? They were just, and all of a sudden I, and I looked around, I could just sense, well, I could sort of see outlines, but I could just sense like thousands of angels all there hovering huh. around being like, then they were like, what do you want? And I worked with them for the next week. Every day, I was spent the entire day there at the tower, and then I went back to Leipzig, and then I went back to Prague again to do a bunch of lectures there because the people who owned the place were like, "You should come do a bunch of lectures here." I was like, "Yeah, that sounds like a plan." <laughs> and uh, nice. And uh, they were the angels were just sort of hanging out there. I felt like like they there was like almost like Dean and Kelly rent some sort of portal there or the like the veil was permanently thin or something like that you know and uh it was an interesting experience like how much how much uh, a bit part of it in your work is a no can still
1: um uh, you know it's toned down there was a period where i was doing a tremendous amount and it was it was kind of the main engine of of my work uh You've and since that? then yeah i've done it, i still use it um since then, um, my work looks a lot more similar to the kind of thing you'd find in the PGM. You know, I've, I do the the Bornless a lot. At, at one point, I was using a variant on the Bornless that I'd written. It's kind of like a, a hybrid between the Bornless and the Watchtower with the Enochian and the exhortation to the portal and all that. Circumambulation. Well, once
0: you know um, like those rituals, like Watchtower, Bornless, uh, you know... SIrp like the, just all of those sort of rituals and then all the other advanced talismanic work the like I think a lot of people don't realize how much they're not really distinct things like once you know them all really well their, their, their borders are, are are vague and they you, they flow into each other and can be put in various forms together really beautifully in my opinion
1: Oh, it's true. Yeah, and I mean the bornless ride is inc- or incredibly versatile. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I've written a bunch of um, of kind of redactions of it in different versions. I, I now use a completely different version that focuses more on the uh, macrocosmic directions and the the cardinal signs. Okay, um, tell me more. But uh, well, it's I mean you know in the Golden Dawn you have the idea of the you have the microcosmic and the macrocosmic directions. Um, the microcosmic being you know air in yeah. the east and earth in the north and all that. Um and those have to do with the four winds and the basically what things look like if you're geographically located in northern Europe. Um and uh you know very earthly and then the macrocosmic directions are based in the zodiac. Um so you have fire in the east, uh air in the west, and uh earth in the south, or you no know, earth yeah, earth in the south. Sorry, I'm like yeah. getting it all mixed up. It's one of those things where like I if I'm in my temple, I know exactly what direction to go. But <laughs> if I try to talk about it, it gets all messed up. But um, it just shifts the focus. You know, you're you're no longer focusing so much on the terrestrial as much as you're focusing on the celestial. Um, so I tend to use both, depending on you know, or one or the other, depending on which uh, which um, kind of direction suits my purposes at any given time.
0: Yeah, I think I think the main teaching I was taught, taught was um, to use the winds. I think if it was like working with a with a spirit, like a, especially like a god or an angel, I would work with the winds, so air in the east for those listening. And um, then if it was, but if it was, uh, try, if I was doing something more talismanic or trying to work with a zodiacal thing, then 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 use the planetary allocations, fire in the east.
1: I yeah, I kind of do the, it. I the almost do it the opposite. Where if I'm aiming to do something like make a talisman, I'll use the uh, the terrestrial, the microcosmic directions, and uh, I kind of use the macrocosmic ones to kind of blast myself into into a state of kind of gnostic consciousness, more uh, more of kind of a mystical.
0: Interesting. Interesting. I, I do like that people are are testing and experimenting with some of this stuff these days. I've been testing out some of the things that I was always told were the case. And sometimes they seem to be hold up. And sometimes they don't seem to be true. I was telling Ash and Shazan about the Earth Pentacle, which I always heard was something that you could like uncover during a ritual to get rid of the spirits or to ground things down. Mm-hmm. But then when I tried that, it had the opposite effect. And the spirits were like, oh, no, we like the shapes and the colors. So it's like infusing us.
1: I can see it making them more dense.
0: Yeah, they were like, all of a sudden,
1: sudden,
0: (laughs) they were spiraling towards it, even though before that they had been spiraling into my crystal and black mirror on the center of the altar. But once I uncovered the earth panel, they started spiraling towards that. And I was seeing them physically with my eyes open, moving because I was doing a a specific thing where I was on a heroic dose of mushrooms. So I was able to physically, with my eyes open, just see shapes, like very real shapes, full color, Mm -hmm. you know, moving around. And I do that once in a while because it's a different experience and uh, can make it really, I find, useful to test things out that you're otherwise just sensing with your sort of psychic senses, like my feelings, you know, so it's sometimes good to, to do. Do you ever incorporate much uh, much psilocybin into uh, any ritual work?
1: Uh, almost never. No, very, very rarely. Uh, for whatever reason, um, I've always just kind of kept it, kept it separate. Um, I, it's more the other way around. Sometimes when I do a psychedelic drug, I'll incorporate ritual uh, into it just a little bit, um, just in order to kind of keep myself centered. Yeah. Um, But uh, yeah, no. For whatever reason, I've just never really brought psychedelic substances into into ritual.
0: I've been working on on it for about over a year now, and I'm going to put out a whole book on it with very specific things. I I think there's, I think it's interesting, uncovered terrain for us to explore. So something I've been doing, you know, um, especially with just observations, because you know you can see things. Anyway, I could talk about that for forever, but like just the observations that you can make are. a bit more real in a sense you know you know what i mean
1: yeah in a sense yeah, I think yeah it's just different yeah
0: different definitely different it's it's fun to be able to uh to do ritual work and see see things really physical in stark colors um which is what psilocybin can enable did you know that john yeah. d and kelly were doing a lot of psychedelics for enokian work did you know
1: that no i had no idea never yeah there's
0: there's this so there's an entry in in one of their diaries and the spirits the enochian angels are chastising kelly for forgetting his drugs (laughs)
1: crazy
0: he's like my pouch is empty and i i covered that on i read through i read out the the entries in in on ryan's praxis of the obscure podcast because i wanted it to just be clear like people have been saying for years that john d never kelly never touched drugs and that drugs are, or and that entheogens have no place in Enochian magic, and that it all some people have even said that if you're doing entheogens, you therefore can't be contacting any actual spirits because you're just having a trip. But That's it's in
1: their diary, denial, man. Of, like, it's, it's massive amounts of history. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, Aaron Leach denial was, of all shamanic, you know, history basically.
0: Aaron Leach was was. Good enough to quote my friend's research in his uh, Secrets of the Magical Grimoires. I'm mostly talking about Chris Bennett's work in Liber 420 and uh, oh, yeah. his other books because um, he's a buddy of mine here. And, and uh, but I noticed that there are still spokespeople, like like uh, Stanwick is a spokesperson for anti-drugs in an O'Kean work, and I think that's fine. But it definitely is. I definitely think people should know that it's mentioned in their diaries, and not just mentioned, but the spirits are actually chastising Kelly for for getting his entheogens. Huh. Which I think is pretty... Yeah, what
1: I always tell students, um, you know, like the outer order work is, um, you know, go ahead and and do psychedelic acceptances if you want. The only caveat I ever put on it, basically, is like, don't do them constantly because it's almost impossible when you're learning to um, learn how to pick up on these subtle forces and subtle visionary experiences when you're dropping bombs in your head all the time. On the other hand, um, doing it... Uh, if not incredibly frequently, even in the outer order, can be an incredible tool in that it it does just kind of drop a bomb in your head, and it allows everything that you've learned to kind of reorganize itself and rearrange itself. Um, so it's a great way to um, get out of uh, just really static, really uh, conditioned, really habitual ways of thinking. Um, and if you're if you're learning esoteric work, or even if you've been doing it for a long time, it, it just it just gives a nice reorg to all of that stuff and helps you see it in a completely different way.
0: Yeah. So good for dropping bombs. You, you don't know yeah. me, but um, am uh, I'm, a, I'm generally quite an advocate for sober magic. I'm, and I've been that way mm. for my whole life. So that's why me exploring these things is not, uh, it's not me like sort of, you know, promoting uh, something I've been doing for a long time. It's me exploring something. It's like, it's I'm exploring. It's like, that guy who all who never would have touched this stuff ever in his life Mm -hmm. and and didn't is now doing it i'm 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 taking i'm taking that sort of going from my pure pure background into exploring the thing no one thought i would ever explore you know what i mean but i definitely think yeah well right i mean well we get older and we want to push the boundaries a little bit and see what we can investigate
1: i think it's a totally valid option i mean and who knows, I mean, maybe I might do it at some point. For whatever reason I haven't at this point, but uh absolutely I do think it's a, a very much valid a valid thing.
0: The the thing I, I would tell I would I would actually probably until you said what you just said, I probably would have always i've always been more like if you're in the outer order going through the grades going through a fixed system of magical training trying to develop your senses and get sort of i see the outer order of uh, going through any elemental system in whether it's in any tradition of magic as getting a baseline you're establishing like a baseline Mm -hmm. or controls and in that sense i would have always said don't touch anything like try and be sober as possible like don't don't do weed or anything like that with ritual work. Um, my temple, we didn't allow people to be on any substances whatsoever. We would not let that be a, be the case. Um, I'm not sure how, how good that strictness was in retrospect, but at the time it made sense to me. And it's the same thing I tell people actually about listening to music when they're doing their outer order work. It's like when you're doing their the first few years of those rituals, a lot of people have asked me, why sh- do you think we should I shouldn't listen to music? Because I've had people tell me, like, I always do my rituals to the same CD and I do the same th- part of the ritual at the same point. It's timed and synchronized. I'm like, that sounds amazing. And I'm all for music when it comes to ceremonies and things like that, um, especially group stuff that, that, you know, but when it's you're doing your personal ritual work, you're trying to develop your astral senses and you're definitely trying to develop your sense your ability to hear things um, whatever they may be especially with scrying or pathworking or any of these vision works where you're listening to spirits and if you're playing music i'm not sure how how well you're going to develop clairaudience at in any way well if you've got music playing
1: oh yeah that'd be impossible for me i um so i'm like I'm, you're trying to develop your senses
0: works. so don't play music right yeah, like, yeah. Like, like like let your scent like be in silence. Try and have as much silence as possible and vibrate. So you uh yeah, oh, okay. Sorry, I'm I'm flustered. I flustered myself.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the clear audience thing would never work for me if I had music. I can't even like if I'm on the phone and somebody starts talking to me, it just all goes down the drain. I can't pick up anything. Um so yeah, I need I need total silence when I'm I'm getting the uh the data download from the spirits.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I think yeah. So that's what that for the for the people. Uh, I, I I promised people I would actually tell them what my thinking was on that, and this is what I'm telling them. It's it's. I, haven't I did get used to hearing
1: now. the sound of the ambulance though, because uh, I lived in Ballard for a long time, and uh, there was a main road right outside my house, and there was just constantly ambulances going up and down. Ugh. So uh, I got really used to listening to the wail of an ambulance while I was just in deep meditation and uh, on the astral plane and in communion with spirits.
0: Yeah, I mean, you gotta focus and tune that stuff out. It's, uh, it's yeah. a challenge, but yeah, no. The music thing, I think, uh, like, great for doing a ceremony. You're doing a Eucharist, put on. We 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 would play like Libera or some other beautiful music, like Delirium, in the background for a Eucharist or something. Not too loud, of course, right? But but yeah, yeah. if you're if you're trying to develop your magical senses, I don't see how playing music every time you do ritual work is going to help you with that.
1: I'd be afraid to get dependent on it too uh, yeah, you, wouldn't well, be able to, you wouldn't feel like it was going right If it wasn't there So
0: this one fratter who told me this well, I was at uh, hanging out with a bunch of initiates At the Isis Urania Temple in England Which there's a new one of those With the Fellowship with the Golden Dawn And well, the guy, I was like, hey, let's do some ritual work He's like, no, I, I just do that alone Because I do it with the CD And I, I do it listening to that music and So I don't want to do it any other way I was like, wow um, I recommend you don't do it with music and I, I actually don't know if I even said to him at the time, but if you're listening, brother, hear, hear him say it to you now, like the fact that it discouraged us doing ritual work together is there's a there's a strike against it, right? Like, oh so, it's, it's like saying, Sorry, Damien, I, I do ritual work with you, but I, I only do it with the C D and it's very specific and timed. And I just missed out on a chance to do ritual work with you. <laughs> right? Like what a what a kind of, what's self limitation? Um, yeah.
1: I, I only do it naked with my entire face Painted pink, and I would just feel weird If somebody saw me doing that, so I can only really do it By myself. Oh,
0: you are a crazy artist, aren't you? <laughs> for those who For those who don't know, we're talking with Damian Murphy, and you are a writer And you are apparently quite um, uh, A bold writer
1: That's a good That's a good way of putting it, I'm happy with that Decadent? <laughs> yes Is decadent Okay uh, yeah, it's a, that's that's an interesting point because um, uh, let's talk uh, about a lot of people. Bro. Well, so I, I have never really considered my work to be very decadent, um, but you know, I kind of accept the label because everybody else does. You know, like everybody that reads it, that's the first thing that comes out of their mouth. Oh, it's really decadent. Like, oh, but it's is it really? Um, well, you and are part of a, a,
0: a literary movement called neo decadence.
1: Yeah, that doesn't really help my case, does it? No. <laughs> yeah, and there's yeah, I have a lot of interesting thoughts on that, though. I think um, uh, so. Firstly, neo-decadence is very different than the original decadent movement. Um, it, it would be a mistake to think that it's just kind of decadence updated okay. um, to like modern styles. Um, and I, I've put a tremendous amount of thought um, into what neodecadence is. I think all of the people that are Uh, involved in writing the neo-decadent manifestos um, have put a lot of thought into it and kind of come to their own conclusions. Um, And kind of part of what I've come out with is decadence, it's only really kind of relevant. I mean, technically it means moral and cultural decay. Um, And in my mind, moral and cultural decay can only really be defined in relation to something that's considered to be upright. Uh, And I think that in an artistic sense especially... Um, what's kind of considered to be upright, uh, culturally upright and morally upright in, in modern times is really something that, would, in my mind, would align more with actual decay. Um, and uh, and so neodecadence um, seeks to kind of break out of the kind of cul-de-sac that uh, a lot of modern creative expression has kind of found itself fallen into um, and, and kind of explore outside of that and... and uh, Um, transgress in a way that's, you know, transgression only in in the sense of going outside of what it is that uh, people suppose uh, an artist or a writer uh, should be doing. Mm. Um, I think a lot of people consider my my work decadent largely because I put a lot of uh, descriptions of interior decor, and um, I'm really into, you know, I I really want to make the reader feel like they're really in the environment that they're reading about and feel very comfortable in it and very much a part of it, um, almost to the point where it's like a physical sensation. Um, so, so there's a be lot of description. Dungeon master. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of like that. Yeah, um, you know, like I'll put a lot of description. I, I I made a post on Facebook the other day that said I I wonder if writing about wallpaper could be considered a fetish um, <laughs> because I was writing the scene, you know, where there's this really <laughs> sumptuous wallpaper, uh, and I've done that a lot and. Um, uh, and, it, you know, I really want the reader to, to feel um, both emotionally and, and sensually and kind of physically what the characters are going through and what they're feeling. Uh, and I use a lot of different techniques to do that. And one of them is just to really describe this, these environments they're in, whether they're technically beautiful environments or whether they're places that are really decayed and, um, or cityscapes or, you know, natural landscapes, whatever they are. Uh, and of course, that looks very decadent, right, because I'm, I'm paying so much attention to the things like decor and, and uh, physical beauty and things like that. Uh, the original decadent writers did, did the same thing. Who are the original the
0: decadent, origins... decadent writers? I think some listeners are actually going to be surprised to be like, I didn't realize decadence had anything to do with decay. Um, so that's cool that we're talking about it and, and broadening people's yeah, I mean, literary it's... appreciation. Um, but but who, are, it... who are the classical decadent writers?
1: I think the ultimate decadent writer in my mind is Jean Lorraine. Okay. um he lived an absolutely decadent lifestyle uh got addicted to ether and this one um, does there's pictures exactly well again the, at the time yeah um there's pictures of his apartment and it's just filled with just insanely gaudy furniture you know like <laughs> um uh yeah he would he live with a decadent lifestyle Oscar Wilde is known for being a, dec- a decadent um uh, uh, Wiesmann's, of course, is is the famous decadent. A lot of the people that are that are considered decadents were really kind of a little bit more on the symbolist side of things. Mm. Um, they weren't really tremendously decadent, um, but they were using um, symbolism to kind of bring out uh, certain qualities in their literary work. Mm. Um, uh, Snuggly Books, which is a, is where I publish my paperbacks, or have so far published my paperbacks is kind of a, um, they're like your one-stop uh, renaissance of, of the original like decadent and symbolist uh, texts. They, they've republished and translated just a tremendous amount um, of decadent work and, and symbolist work. But yeah, I, I would definitely recommend starting with Jean Lorraine. Um, the first collection of his that came out on Snuggly, which oh, I wish I remember what was called, if only I had a kind of international network at my fingers. Oh, wait, I can look it up. Uh,
0: <laughs> it's called the like Nuosphere, brother. It's called the <laughs> Um, Man, wouldn't it be um, cool if there was like a, a Google search engine that was like, you know, good and not like.
1: Nightmares of an, oh, yeah. oh there's, well, kind of. Nightmares of an Ether Drinker. That's the first one uh, by Jean Lorraine. Um, anybody that really wants to know about the decadent writers—that's uh, that's my highest.
0: Nightmares recommendation. of an ether drinker. Is, would he be your yeah. favorite decadent writer?
1: Uh, well, I don't, I don't really know. He's 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 the one that I would consider just pure decadence. Um, okay. more than any of the others.
0: Um, one of my favorite books is *A Season in Hell* by Arthur Rimbaud.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Would Rimbaud's he be
0: borderline decadent?
1: Uh, A little more symbolist, um, but, um, you know, there's decadence there. I mean, certainly look at his lifestyle before he went to Africa. Um,
0: Yeah, died young too, right? Like 34 or something like that?
1: Well, yeah, he might have. I mean, he stopped writing poetry at like 18 or so and then went to Africa in search of a fortune and lived this like utterly miserable, um, non-artistic life. I think he did die around 34, yeah.
0: Yeah, very young, I recall. Very young. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did you read Season
1: in Hell? Yeah, yeah. Um, I had an obsessive period with Rimbaud where I read everything.
0: Oh, uh, you did, eh? Rimbaud.
1: Yeah, I read, really I read... <laughs> I read. I, I had
0: a... Uh, I took, for my Easter vacation in grade 11, I took a train ride to northern BC to visit a fratter and a friend and do a bunch of Celtic mysteries, Yates scrying with him in the forest, like fucking hell and gone like literally like we're talking like 40 hours north into the wilderness nothing's there oh, yeah. like nothing uh oh rimbo died uh when he was 37 so yeah young 10 years yeah. too late to be part of the 27 club oh well um so and on the way on the train ride up i read season in hell and on the train ride back i read heart of darkness oh nice <laughs> and i figured that was a well-spent easter vacation you know what i mean oh yeah Yeah, I think those are some books that people need to read. Um, What's the first book someone should read of yours that they could easily access, uh, you know, now that they're hearing us talk and curious about what you might write? What would you say people should start with? I didn't recall you saying that on Praxis of the Obscure podcast, but maybe you did.
1: Oh, I don't think I did if I remember, but um, there's one called, it's a novella, it's called The Acephalic Imperial um it's on snuggly books it's got a nice yellow cover um and uh snuggly uh, books is t- kind of
0: an ironic name for the decadent movement isn't it
1: oh totally yeah i love that yeah it definitely was <laughs> was coined in irony uh, but it's also you know um it, it works very well for my kind of publishing art because the other press that i've published more with than anybody else is uh, mountabraxis press it used to be called Ex Occidente. And they put out these really expensive, rare, limited, sumptuous hardbacks. That's probably another reason why people think my work is so decadent because sexy. The first books that I yeah they they put out these really sexy books. Who doesn't um, like
0: sexy books?
1: I know they're they're fantastic. Yeah, and uh, and so there were there's a lot of other um, presses that put out these really fancy and in fine limited edition books. And so Snuggly's kind of tagline is yeah we just put out Snuggly books books you can snuggle up with you know we're not putting out anything super super rare you know and and uh, they do have hardbacks um limited editions but um even those are fairly basic uh they're print on demand um and yeah they're just three books you can cuddle up with you wouldn't want to cuddle up with like you know a 200 hundred dollar book spill wine on it and be kind of a drag
0: yeah uh, um i have to my regret in the past I, I have. Yeah, a, I, I've done I, it too. I have a, will do it again. But I used to always travel with my first edition of the Cabalian, and oh, yeah. uh, and and the 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 dust jacket, like it, it, you know, it's it's it tore apart. But I thought the book was like the be all and end all of hermeticism until I learned better. Of course, I was oh, I yeah. was a, I was a kid. I was like
1: sixteen at the time. In so. the nineties, everybody thought that. Yes, <laughs> they totally did.
0: Too. They did. I know. We didn't right? know any better. We didn't know any better. We needed Nick we what we to could. educate us. That's right. The, you've you've heard his critique of the oh, yes. yeah. Oh, totally. <laughs> um, so,
1: um, it doesn't
0: go far enough in my opinion. Probably. I was I was hanging out with the these two scientists and engineers. Uh they're both PhDs in quantum physics, and one of them is an engineer and they're married, and they're actually launching these five thousand mirrors or image or lenses they designed, this husband and wife team. Um, to perceive dark matter in Texas at this institute. Like, this oh, is super legit. I know them because one of them is the daughter of Granny Rainbow. Granny Rainbow's daughter is one of the world's huh. leading physicists in dark matter. And she was a student of Paul Foster Case's protege. And she's, like, 82 now. And she's awesome. And I, wow. I, I was hanging out with her for 14 months in California last year. And I got to hang out with her daughter and her daughter's husband. And I was, like, asking them questions based on the Kabbalion. And they were, like correcting me based on what would fit within what they know of science or not. i'm like i need them to come on the podcast and like address the cabalian point by point they probably won't and even if they would they probably <laughs> couldn't for their career's sake but just the fact that like you know you know the kabbalion is written with this new thought approach that has never been really challenged by science and i just think i i'm not trying i don't want people to throw out the kabbalion and i don't just like i don't want people to throw out science in favor of untested spirituality i want there to be sure. a conversation man like we got to have conversations that aren't being had if we want to get i think real insights into the future you know yeah yeah, absolutely. So, like, perceiving dark matter would be great, but also knowing, like, knowing which parts of the cabalion are actually insightful into what we currently know of physics and and the universe scientifically, that would be really that would be worth knowing. Like, for physicists to sit down, like, real ones who aren't like you know, you know, the right physicists, ones who aren't goofy or nut jobs, and ones who aren't too too hard science, but also not too. New age, because there's lots of physicists who are super new age and have sold out for the secret, basically. You know what I mean? Um, ones that right. just would say, like, hey, like, seriously look at the Kabbalion and be like, these points here are points worth considering. That's what I want. That'd be interesting. Yeah. Wouldn't it? Yeah. That would be like super fascinating to know which points are, like, I think the vibration thing is one, right? Like, sure. phys- phys- uh, the physicists, scientists across the spectrum now are talking about vibration. But they always have been. So, like, there's some, but for some of us who aren't, don't have a PhD in physics, we just don't know what stuff is more credible than others. I mean, I think the gender thing is the whole, like, the world is gendered. That's, that's a bit weird. I don't know if that's the case.
1: Hey, that's not going to fly these days, no.
0: Well, it's definitely not trendy. <laughs> Let's but, just
1: cover that one up <laughs> and pretend that wasn't there.
0: Yeah. Beep, blop, bloop. I didn't say that. <laughs> um, My, so, um, yeah i don't edit this podcast by the way i just release it like it was live oh that's cool yeah i i hopefully actually in the future the technology will be there which we can as easily as we just signed on to talk we can hit another button and everyone who's like subscribed to the spotify whatever can hear it or what you know what i mean like hopefully it could be like that in the future yeah yeah, without the live whole radio. YouTube video. Yeah, like uh, that's we were we almost had a, a live call in occult show. I thought the platform was ready for it. This other platform, and me and my buddy Jesse were going to do it, and Ash and Shasan was going to come on be the first guest. It was going to be a big deal, like a cult radio call in show done easily. But it just the technology wasn't quite there, um, and none of us have the time to like. We could make it work, but that would be a lot of work, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Totally. Wouldn't it
0: be great to have an occult call in show?
1: Yeah, I'm kind of surprised it doesn't exist actually.
0: Well, that's why we gotta um, do it. Like early adopters, yeah. baby. Maybe you, you yeah. will help. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, all of us who do magic and and have other lives, of course, we it's it's hard to find the time to to do that much. I mean, it's uh it's a challenge. But I hopefully, uh, hopefully that'll happen soon. I would love to be able to like call in and harass Nick Farrell on a podcast, you know? <laughs> <laughs> be like nicky buongiorno tell me tell me more about that, though, is this card
1: you get so i mean i've done a lot of lectures and you always get people that um you know they're like well how does what you're talking about have relate to the klyphoth and the black hole and star trek and kenneth grant and you're like oh it doesn't <laughs> and uh <laughs> you know and it's, so you got to kind of curb it a little bit just to <laughs> keep everything focused
0: yeah well, now I want to hear about the black hole in Kenneth Grant.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I am not allowed to talk about it actually. <laughs> Kenneth kind Grant of we're talking about. We were talking about mafia before.
0: Yeah. Um, one he can, of my he major can, he can
1: mafia from the other side of the veil.
0: One of my major studies was on the Cleepo as they pertain to the seven deadly sins. And I used Night Side of Eden to gain insight into how to deal with the dark night of the senses and spirit and soul addressed by saint john of the cross in dark night of the soul and so i used kenneth grant to investigate saint john of the cross and his spiritual methodologies for going through the dark night and uh, that was a that was the thing i was got i got known for from like 99 to 2003 um and a lot of people are like you can't compare saint john of the cross to kenneth grant i'm like yeah i can And they're like, no, you can't because Kenneth Grant is evil. It's like, oh, fuck off. (laughs) Well, you know, Golden Dawn's Typhonian tradition, they don't necessarily blend. But I was like, hey, these path demons and the tunnels, his theory on how the tunnels work. And I know a lot of people are not into the Avers tree or the Sephirotic tree of life at all. But it's still like, like the tree of life itself is just a superimposed glyph. To explore nature as I see it, so why not have an inverse tree to explore a different part of nature and spirit? Sure, yeah, you agree. Uh,
1: it's never really been my thing, but I, you know, like I don't, yeah. I'm not against it. I mean, uh, yeah,
0: I tend to avoid klepto and demons and dark stuff in general. Honestly, it's not. But that's why when I do go there, it's nice to have some tools and it's nice to have some people who have explored it before me as a as a touch point. You know. I yeah, wouldn't want to be I the guy like who's I, just summoning demons and seeing what happens.
1: Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I kind of um, satisfy those. That, that There's a part of myself that's very drawn to that, and I kind of find that I satisfy that with more of the Chthonic kind of underworld. Uh, mostly underworld deities more than anything else, but then a lot of the spirits in the Gwimors were once deities. Um, yeah. And yeah, that, there is that, um, you know... There is a desire to get into something that's a once more earthy and more, um, I don't really want to say dark because that sounds kind of cliche, but uh, um, mafioso or something. I, underworldly, catholic it's the only word I can really use to describe it.
0: Um, They're not dark demons, people. They're mafiosos. <laughs> I like They're them. not even
1: necessarily mafioso. I mean, oh,
0: you, uh, can't, you, can you can't with... walk that back now that you threw that term out. <laughs> it's such a great categorization. Some, are. Some yeah. spirits are gangsters.
1: Kinda. There, there are like, some.
0: I like that. I really do like that. But I wouldn't vibe. say Thank that
1: you about you know like uh, there's a the chthonic Hermes, for instance. As <laughs> Hermes went down under the earth in the uh, Persephone myth, or under mm-hmm. into the underworld. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, call the chthonic, uh version of Hermes um, or Orpheus, for that matter, uh, mafioso. But there are spirits that are mafioso, definitely.
0: Yeah, which ones?
1: It's definitely. Well, like I said, the ones that I've worked with in the lesser key. Um,
0: so, uh, those, so those have always more. come
1: across to me as very, very mafia.
0: Who do you work with a lot?
1: Uh, I don't really work with any of them a lot. I've only really worked with them a handful of times. And it's only really been when I've, when I've needed something. What nice. I found with the lesser key is that um, they are excellent at getting something done very quick. Um, they don't seem to have any moral standards, so you have to give them a little bit of guidance. Um, but if something's stolen, you want it back, or you just need something right now, and it's, uh, the need is absolute, um, there are other other things you can use as well, but I found them to be to be very effective for that. Um, who's, the, who's the one? Humor
0: me. Who's the one you talk to for some things that are stolen that you want back?
1: Andromalia said be the the 72nd demon of the 70, okay. 72nd of 72.
0: I might need um, to uh, have a little date. Oh, yeah. Sam. Well, so if, good experiences. What, what what tell me about can we can we can we dig into that for a minute?
1: Well, yeah, the only thing I've ever worked with that spirit for is I had my car stolen. Um, and I had read, I think it was Lon Milo Duquette wrote something about that spirit in his book. I don't remember if it had specifically had to do with a stolen car. It was a stolen something. And I thought, well, I'll give it a try. Um, and uh, I went in to do the working, and I came out, and there was a message on my answering machine, like the car had been recovered while I was doing the working. And I was like, okay, that's impressive. Uh and I had promised uh, the spirit a reward, and I thought I'd better reward the spirit because
0: With some uh, of your blood.
1: W- w- n- no, <laughs> <laughs> don't ever do that. Once you, um, that's the absolute last thing. And that's not only that. That's in a lot of traditions. You just don't, don't, don't give the, the dead your blood either. It's not a good idea. You
0: use blood um, on your sigils, but you don't give you it can. to the spirit. <laughs> yes. Well, a lot of people say that it should be used on Guayac sigils. Your blood is necessary. A lot of people think that.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't do it. Um, in voodoo, my partner is uh, initiated into Haitian voodoo. And in voodoo, um, oh, nice. the last thing you ever want to do is give one of the Loa your blood. Uh, because they'll, they'll develop a taste for it, and then they'll want more. Um, and that's, that's not something you want anything wanting more of.
0: Yeah. So you would advise people at, to not use their blood in sigils?
1: Well, in sigils, I think that's fine. I mean, I used to do it. When I was 20, I I joined... This is almost embarrassing. I joined the Temple of Psychic Youth. Um, in fact, okay. I ended up sending a sigil with fluids all over it to an address that was no longer a Topi Temple. Were they and very they were they back.
0: were they a very fluid based temple? They totally
1: fluid based, and the people yeah. that got it were so nice. They just wrote me a letter like, "This is no longer a Topi headquarters. Please don't send anything else." They weren't like mean or anything.
0: They sent did my you, sigil back. Did you back. work with Jason much? Uh, I don't know who that is. Jason Louve. Oh, no, no, I never worked with him. Because he was deep in that. He was in Vancouver for quite a while. I, I think it I may have been a totally... with him once.
1: Oh, yeah, it was Topi Northwest. It may have been, like, a completely fake topia. It was after Genesis Peorage had dissociated himself from them. And oh, that was okay. kind of before the internet, so I didn't even know about that.
0: Oh, I didn't know she disassociated um, herself from them at all. I'm, I'm not in that yeah, world. Yeah,
1: I should say know. they. They disassociated themselves yeah, from them. that Yeah, that
0: story, that's what I meant. They, yeah.
1: yeah, it was back in the 90s, so was, I was using... That, that was how Genesis was referred to in the 90s, so that was kind of where I was mm-hmm. going to. But, um, yeah, yeah, I didn't know about any of that. I Rest was just in like, peace,
0: eh? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, you know, Genesis, Genesis was performing uh, with their band in Berlin when I was lecturing at a culture conference in 2018, and a bunch of us wanted to get over there, but it was, you know, it's hard to do two things. You know, you're at a conference and oh, stuff. Yeah. But I was like, how trippy is that, that Genesis is performing at the same time as a culture? Wow, I can't believe yeah, they awesome. didn't... real genesis in to pop over and uh make an appearance i would
1: have oh i would have loved to meet genesis yeah 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 totally um yeah i've never met them i've been in the same room with them a number of times um just you know little shows that they'd come out and do in seattle and stuff not psychic tv shows just genesis peerage coming out and doing a set somewhere
0: cool yeah
1: yeah back in the 90s
0: yeah yeah. So, when did when did you start into magic? Was it in your teens? Um, yeah, it was in your teens, right?
1: Y- no, no, I was twenty. It must have been oh, about twenty. That's right. Or you were twenty.
0: That's right. Yeah. I remembered hearing your podcast with Ryan, and and you mentioned you were twenty. I was like, okay, that's interesting. It's it's sort of late, uh, but also not.
1: Oh, it was perfect for me. I'm glad I didn't get into it earlier. I would have done a lot of really dumb things. <laughs> uh, it just flicked on like a light switch. Um, when I was a teenager, I, I kind of knew people that were into magic. I was dating this woman, and her friend was was getting into it. And uh, she told me that he was into magic, and I was like, magic, um, is that like Dungeons and Dragons or something? <laughs> <Magic> <laughs> I was like, gathering. oh, cool, okay. And I, like, I, I remember somebody had um, was freaked out because somebody at their school was into witchcraft, and they mentioned Satanism. And the same girl that I had dated uh, had said, well, magic and witchcraft and Satanism are all different things. And I was like, whoa this woman knows stuff. (laughs) That's cool. I just had no idea about any of it. Like, absolutely in the dark. And then um, a series of events just rapidly happened uh, when I turned 20, and suddenly I was like, this is what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. Absolutely no question.
0: It's interesting how it works like that, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it, it felt very much like that was kind of the way it was supposed to happen. It just... Like I put something in myself to make sure I didn't get into it any earlier because it wouldn't have gotten to a a good place, I think.
0: I like had a spiritual epiphany during a forest fire uh, one night in British Columbia, a very famous forest fire that was devastating. And the next morning I woke up and there was this thought in my head, there's this gnosis in my head that I had to be an occultist. And I didn't really know what that meant. Actually, the phrase in my head was, I, I, I am an occult. And I don't know what that meant. I didn't know what an occultist was, really. I knew a bit of it from, like, role-playing games, but I didn't know what it entailed. There was just this, there was something that switched inside of my being, right? And uh, that was it. Game over. That was, that was it from ever after. It's like, uh, it is a kind of calling or a charism.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I kind of resisted it for a little while, too. Uh, the same thing happened with writing. It was weird. It, it uh, I had written things before, but I'd gotten to the point where um, I was like, "Okay, I'm not a writer," you know, and I'm, I just, this is just not for me. And then a, a series of events just happened, and it was like, "Pow!" Suddenly, I'm a writer, <laughs> and, and it's, it, I to this day, it was that was about seven years ago. I still feel like the writing thing is like a a monster truck that just started like barreling forward, and I'm like hanging on by a chain, getting dragged, dragged along by it. Um, it almost feels like it's not really entirely in my hands. Uh, mm. Like, I can shape it, but it's it's happening, you know, whether I want it to or not. And fortunately, I do, so.
0: I think, is it crazy to call that true will? Like, once you discover it, it's like, it's just this current flowing through you and you're just along for the ride?
1: Yeah, the way that I would look at it is that um, uh, if you call it true will, I and mean, everything that I do kind of stems from the same thing but it sometimes has very different expressions. Mm. Um, So it's like the the true will is kind of um, maybe kind of impossible to put into words and undefinable. It's something I can know very intimately, but I can't really capture it in words, even though if you're in the AA, you're totally supposed to. Um, uh, Whereas, you know, it has all these different expressions. It sometimes seem to be very, even sometimes kind of opposed to each other, Um, but they all spring from the same kind of source. Hmm. Um, so, like, as a teacher and a writer, in a way, I'm I'm exactly the opposite. Uh, in one-on-one occult teaching, I'm basically a Boy Scout. <laughs> I'm like, there's nothing that's all above the boards. There's nothing. Uh, I'm not one of those, like, oh, I'm the mystical wisdom teacher. You know, I'm like, this is the work. This is how you do it. This is what it's supposed to do. It can do other things as well. If you have any questions, like, I don't want anything to be unclear. Um, it's all about work. Uh, it's basically like you're in a militant Boy Scout order um, or Girl Scout or Person Scout or whatever. Um, Whereas as a writer, uh, it's all about deception and trickery and misdirection. Um, And uh, my writing is supposed to be very mysterious because by um, taking things that are very mysterious um, and mixing them with the sensual and things that are very um, physically descriptive and visually descriptive it allows me to kind of open up doors for the reader and allow them to hopefully get into certain spaces um, that uh, if they're, if they're not occult practitioners, they probably wouldn't end up getting in any other way. So it's these two completely different sides, you know, they're very much opposed to each other, but they, uh, they both spring from the same root and they both, um, they both kind of complement each other. And since I've been writing, I feel like it's even crystallized my teaching a little bit because it's like, now I have an outlet for the other side of things. Um hmm. Whereas before it was just that outlet was like you know playing the fool in social situations or whatever. I didn't I didn't have a very concrete outlet for it.
0: What's it like um, working with your girlfriend who's a Haitian Voodoo initiate?
1: Uh, well, she she has a Western occult background um, and didn't really get into Voodoo until uh, um, like a little bit before we met, and then a few years after we met, went down to Haiti and, and got initiated. Wow. Um voodoo is, is really interesting. It's it's very different than uh, anything else I've ever worked with.
0: As soon as I um, read uh, I think it was like 97, 98, I read Maya Darren's Divine Horseman, oh, yeah. and I, I was hooked. And uh, it's it's been my side passion ever since is Haitian Voodoo. And I have a very close relationship with like Gidi. And but I just don't know much more. Like, you know, there's I want to know more. I want to do more integration. Does she... Would she... Uh, do you? Have you found, have you guys found that there's much integration possible with Haitian voodoo? Because, I mean, there's a lot of people saying, of course, these days, like, you know, you can't mix things together. you got to keep them pure and in their own tradition. But I'm guessing you might have experimented
1: with some blending and syncretism. No, we don't really blend them at all. They're really separate. Uh, although, um, in Haiti... What, I, what I've heard, I've never been there, but uh, what I've heard is that um, a lot of people in Haiti are really fascinated by Western magic because it's exotic to them. Uh, whereas voodoo is just us. what everybody does. Yeah, yeah exactly. Wow. Uh, and there's also, um, there's there's Haitian Freemasonry um, that definitely incorporates voodoo. Really? Um, oh, yeah. But for me, the two things are so completely separate. Um, voodoo, it's just completely amazing. I I've had really, really very good and very strong experiences with it. I wouldn't characterize it as anything more strong or less strong than anything I've experienced with, with more Western work, but definitely different. Um, yeah, the whole experience is different. I mean, first of all, if you get taken by a law, you're not there, you're gone. Like you it's not like you've done an invocation where you can see through the eyes of a deity. Um, yeah. you have a little slice of your life. It's just missing. And suddenly you're like, how did I get on this side of the room? I did what?
0: <laughs> so, you, so you've been mounted.
1: I haven't. No, I never have. Um, but Uh, that's another thing is that if you are trained whether you're self-trained or been trained in an order in western magic it's it's kind of harder because you're used to maintaining control
0: Um, yeah it's only like the most it was the only times we ever did like loss of control stuff was in we'd call it contact work or if it was like if you were trying to connect with like third order spirit level beings
1: right the know. only time I've ever come close to being uh, fully ridden is um, by one particular loa, uh, Dambala, Dambala Waydo. Um, it's a big, giant python lives in the sky. Uh, and it's the, Dambala is a very trancy uh, loa. Uh, and that particular loa, um, the headspace that that loa will get you to, because you know if you're not ridden and you're in the room doing a voodoo ceremony, or even if you're just in the same room and there's people doing it, the energy of the Lois incredible. I mean, it just hits you in the face. It's super potent. It's it's way better to be with somebody that's ridden than to be ridden. Because if you're with somebody that's ridden, you get to hang out with the gods. Right. If you're ridden, you don't even, you're not even there. It's like the party happened and you're asleep in the other room or something. <laughs> uh, but down below we do. I've, I've almost um I think I've almost been taken by that law a number of times. And that that experience is a lot closer to like the kind of Gnostic consciousness experience that I'll, I'll often experience
0: mm, yeah.
1: after you know in meditation after doing something like the Bornless or something. But even that, I mean, it's like it just doesn't. Yeah. Uh, I, the other thing is that I've never been initiated, and after you're initiated, your head is depending on what level you initiate at. Your head is wide open. I mean, you're going to start to get taken. Uh, it's not uncommon for people to get initiated, and you know get get ridden in inappropriate places for until they kind of get used to it. Really? It just opens you right up. And, wow. And in Haiti, apparently, that's, that's what I'm told, is that that's just normal, that people get hit, you know, kind of all the time.
0: Is it hard for a Westerner these days to go down and get initiated in a reliably authentic way?
1: Well, I don't know about now. It wasn't really at the well, time yeah, now, my partner sadly. did it, which was... Oh, my God. Yeah, it was kind of the early, mid-2000s. Um, I have no idea what the situation is. I mean, now, obviously, in COVID, you're probably not going to do it.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, speaking um, as if things in the world hadn't happened that have happened. That's yeah. sort of how I meant it. <laughs> Imagine nothing, yeah. none of the shit went down. If that had, if the shit hadn't gone down, but everything did go down to in in a lot of trouble, eh? Yeah,
1: yeah, I, I know there's... There's other voodoo houses that aren't in Haiti, too. Like, there's at least, well, there's more than one in New York, but there's one in New York that uh, I know of that is run by Haitians. Um, And, they, you know, there's a lot of stuff in voodoo, I guess, where you're supposed to be in Haiti, and there's stuff that's actually tied to to the land and stuff. Um, But Haitians that have gone to New York have made it very close to that, you know, to the point of, like, bringing dirt from Haiti up and everything. Wow. Um so there's places where you can do it in the US. There's other houses as well. Um, so there's I mean that's always a thing. Uh I, the the house that um my partner was initiated into, I don't even know if that house is really I don't know what the state of that is exactly. Um, but there's other avenues, you know, that you can you can go through. Uh yeah. so I don't I don't know like how easy it would be to get an initiation in Haiti at this point, yeah. uh, like say after COVID. Maybe easy. I I don't know.
0: Does your Does your girlfriend or is it wife? Yeah, girlfriend. Girlfriend. Does she teach at all?
1: Uh, No, not really. She's run some some services. Um, Yeah, she can't initiate
0: either, right? You have to be a certain level.
1: No, I think she could, but yeah, it's just not a route she's chosen to go. It's just you know. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to speak for her, you know, and she could speak to it so much eloquently. Yeah, but like, you know, I'm I'd love
0: to that. talk to her sometime if she's ever game, for sure. Maybe. I'd love to, I'd love to hear more about that.
1: Yeah, I'll bring it up, but uh, I can't guarantee anything.
0: <laughs> yeah, no problem, no problem. It's, uh, it's very cool. It must be, uh, I'm very jealous that you get to uh, share a relationship with someone initiating into those mysteries. That's a very cool thing. Yeah. I can't yeah, imagine there's definitely, much of a better um, fusion of magical traditions than the interaction in any form of, of two people initiated into the Western and the Haitian magical traditions.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I, I know that there are people doing it in um in the West. For a long time, we had friends in Philadelphia that were running and it was certainly not public, but you know, they you could get involved with them and and get in touch with them if you were interested. And they at the time anyway, they were running something where you could uh really experience like a full service and, and the whole thing. Wow. So there's there's opportunities in the West, in, in the US and in Canada. Uh, I don't always necessarily know where they are, but but yeah. I know it's out there.
0: Did so so um switching tracks again, what is you got favorite authors? I want I, I like talking about writing and literature and I don't talk to writers very often these days. So I'm excited to talk to another writer.
1: Oh yeah. Um Let's, talk, yeah, yeah, Let's a, talk more about writing, man. Okay, I'm totally down. Yeah, I've got yeah, a bunch cool. of stuff. So the first writer I'd recommend is Justin Isis. Uh he was also uh in inter- I liked or, his podcast. Yeah,
0: yeah, I really like I he and I have chatted, we're gonna talk soon.
1: Yeah, I read uh his first book, which is called I Wonder What Human Flesh Tastes Like. And I yeah. thought, wow, as before I knew him, I thought this guy's invented a new kind of literature. Uh wow, and then uh, and then I read a second book. Um Welcome to the arms race, and I was like, "What? He did it again!" Because <laughs> the two <laughs> books are really different, but they're both completely—they uh, both have things in them that have not been done before, and, and uh, you could imagine a whole kind of uh, movement arising arising out of it. He's so—he's he's a one good of the writer. behind. Yeah, he's—he's he's a fantastic writer. He's one of the people behind uh, neo decadence. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just wrote a book, it and he's came out an in a OTO
0: video. guy living in in the Japan. Group.
1: That's that's true. He is yeah,
0: yeah. For for those of you who don't know, check out Justin Isis's interview on Praxis Behind the Obscure.
1: Right. Uh, I, yeah, that's that's the one. Uh, I just finished a book by Brendan Connell. Uh, it's called The Galaxy Club, published on Shormu Press, uh, mm-hmm. and I cannot recommend that book more. It's it's just amazing. Uh, everything that Brendan Connell's written is incredibly good. He wrote another book called Clark, which I think should be um, super popular, but. It's hard for anything in the small press to get anything other than than obscurity. But uh, he's really good. Um, Quentin S. Crisp, not to be confused with the Quentin Crisp that wrote The Naked Civil Servant. The Quentin S. Crisp um, is incredibly good. He's a writer from the UK. Um, And uh, just to name one more kind of obscure writer, there's a guy named Adam S. Cantwell. S is an initial, uh, Adam S. Cantwell. He's uh, in New York. Um, his his work is a lot harder to get. He hasn't really published in paperback. It's all these usually in kind of limited edition hardback books. Um, and I don't even know if he's interested in publishing in a more accessible format. Um, but his work is among the best I've ever read. It just wow. uh, incredibly mysterious, incredibly unique.
0: Adam um, S. Cantwell?
1: Yeah, he has really, really good stuff. He has a new book coming out on Mount Abraxas, uh, I think this year, called Irks Canox. And I've heard it described as um, like He-Man mixed with um, existentialist themes, and uh, and awesome. knowing the writer, that, that description being so completely those two things seem so incongruous. I'm like, oh god, I would kill to read that book. I hope it actually comes out. It was first advertised years ago, so you had me at He-Man. Time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, a lot of other favorite writers. Marguerite Dura is one of my favorites. She's a French writer. Mm. Um, she uh, writes these kind of super mysterious books that you have to read multiple times to, to really... Somebody once described Dura as... Um, Dura's dialogue as being dialogue that is is spoken directly from the unconscious. Uh, and after they said that, I had to go back and reread a bunch of her books because that it just kind of gave me a new, a new angle on it. I don't think that was necessarily what she was thinking when... When she wrote it but it does open up a new uh kind of a new angle on her writing huh um my favorite authors i mean i could talk for like hours and hours clarice Lispector is another really good one she wrote an incredible book about um a woman that has a mystical experience killing and eating a cockroach that's like the whole book that's right there basically i mean who else would do that i mean that's like
0: yeah amazing. i don't know if i could handle that but <laughs>
1: it's not that gruesome really no. That's the thing. it's more <laughs> mystical than gruesome i recommend it it's called the passion mm. according to gh
0: okay it's like okay.
1: A, i think i think the housemaid accidentally killed the cockroach and she opens up the cupboard and finds it and launches her into this big mystical thing it, like 100 percent unique nobody else has ever done that before since.
0: Hey, no one I've ever asked has actually read this book. Have you read Flicker by Theodore Rozak?
1: No, no, that doesn't sound familiar. Oh my
0: God. It's like the one book that I think no that no one's read but everyone needs to read. A buddy when I was living in Ireland told me to read it, and I missed my train stop through Germany because I couldn't put it down and I had to take two flights to like get to where I was going because I got oh, yeah. so lost in this thousand page book. It was oh, nice. If there's a book I can recommend Flickr by Theodore Rose. I, I feel like it was actually sort of prophetic in a way. Like, like if there's powers that be that don't want people to read it, that might be the book. And it's great. Like he's even got like a, uh, what's his name? The guy who did uh, Orson Welles is a character in it. Oh, interesting. And it's about like the development of cinema, but it goes into the film rates of like how many film uh, images have to be seen per second. And then it ties that into the Knights Templars. But it's a mystery adventure that ends in the most shocking way you would ever hope or fear it would end. It's just great. If you, if, if you know, if I can recommend one book, and I therefore have to ask if there's a book you would recommend above all that I should read.
1: Oh, geez, I have no idea. I would have to think of it for a while. All right,
0: if you can think of a book that I should read, let me know. Yeah, let's see. Um I'm still playing catch-up on all the occult literature I missed in the last 10 years while I was busy playing Irish music. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm behind on the popular occult writers like Leach and Chassan and Miller and Stavish and all of those people. And I'm trying to play a bit of catch-up. And not to mention Skinner and Peterson, but they're more resources than writers, right? Have you read much Skinner and, and Peterson?
1: Um Peterson, I read a uh, lot of Skinner. Peterson? Yeah,
0: Joseph Peterson is that? what his name? Is
1: yeah. I'm trying to think, what did he write? That sounds familiar.
0: He's the one doing, like he's sort of parallel to Doctor Skinner. He's Doctor Joseph Peterson, and he's doing. He's got the five books of John D. And he's oh he does,
1: yeah yeah okay.
0: They both do I mean, a I lot have of. those on my shelf. Yeah. Yeah they. Pardon me, they both do a lot of the same translations, I think, just uh, differently, and therefore giving us some variety and counter-critiques across the two of them. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, I hadn't mentioned occult books. If I was going to recommend an occult book, um, I would recommend something by Henri Corban. Probably, um, this might be my favorite occult book. It's more of a mystical book than an occult book. Probably Temple and Contemplation. Um, Henri Corbin you said it like we. Uh, oui? I know I used to say Henry Corbin and then I heard Henry somebody Corbin. pronounce it in a French way and like, oh, I, I, I
0: still say Henry Corbin because otherwise people don't <laughs> know who I'm talking about
1: you know? I can't even really pronounce the first syllable in his first name you have to be French to pronounce it oh, and, and, Henri
0: and then, then, then there's the French-Canadian so we're like Henri Corbin oh, right. la, la,
1: <laughs> you do it better than I can
0: uh, oh, Templeton uh,
1: Contemplation is very good um Uh, Although there's a kind of a key to his work, which is uh, the Mundus Imaginalis essay, um, which I don't know if that's been published by itself. It's in a book um, paired with a a lecture, an essay called uh, Swedenborg and Esoteric Islam. And uh, the Mundus Imaginalis essay, like, that's probably the best thing to read by Corban up front. It's really short. It's like 80 80 pages. Um, But then Temple and Contemplation is like his masterwork, in my opinion.
0: I will read both of those i'm i'm a big fan of that period i like the arianists i do i'm a huge fan of Murcha eliada and all of those oh, yeah. people uh that's it's, it's sort of my thing I, w- I was an academic student of nicholas goodrick clark for my phd up until he oh, nice. died um so I'm, I'm a fan of the antoine fevra and the whole academic movement within uh, esotericism to a large extent actually most of my podcast is me just commenting on academic essays i don't know if you know that <laughs> oh yeah. but that's most most of the 160 or so episodes are me commenting on academic essays from phds on esotericism that's most of this i'm
1: so behind on like all podcasts everywhere i have to go back and like listen to all of that
0: <laughs> why well, i started okay. doing this seriously during uh, covid because i was trapped in california and couldn't get out and didn't know what to do and was cut off from everything i was doing my work was terminated and so i just started doing it every day like going over academic essays and reading and commenting on them so that's oh, nice. that's how this started and it blew up my podcast blew up and i was like oh god damn it what do i do now so i guess i'll roll with this and now there's a website and exclusive membership for special episodes and all that jazz and it's the nice. fun yeah. i'm enjoying doing it like i get to talk to people like you and geek out over golden dawn magic and nokian grimoire's Haitian Voudin, and literature all at the same time, yes, please. Like, <laughs> Let's
1: see. I feel like I should go back and um, I had recommended a book, uh, The Acephalic Imperial. Um, and I just wanted to give some kind of description of it or something, um, just to give it a little bit of context. Um, I don't know how much time we got. I, I've got a bunch yeah, of time. we
0: we got another hour and a half to oh dude do you know how many people have come on this podcast and then like like uh, the psychedelic historian thomas Hatzis? he told me <laughs> check it out he told me he's like yeah i'm free to do your podcast this was a while ago last year he's like between 11 and, and one so i was like okay cool only two hours but that's fine and after after two hours uh he was i he was i was like um oh you probably have to go because it's it's hit the two hour limit he's like no i only had one hour free I'm like, well, we're at two hours now. He's, I thought you said 11 to, to 1. And he was like, no, I, I had an hour between 11 and 1. I'm like, <laughs> well, it's been two hours. He's like, I lost track of time talking to you. I'm so sorry. I'm like, no, it's fine. That podcast ended up being four hours and 15 minutes. Oh, crazy. Yeah. So we are ha- we can roll. We can roll. Actually, every uh, the podcasts that are over three hours get twice as many, two to three times more listens than the ones that are less than two, three hours wow is that weird that's weird people yeah. are weird all you listeners <laughs> you motherfuckers out I've there listening that. to this shit fucking crazy i have the stats in front of me <laughs> two two to three times more listens at every podcast that hits over the three hour mark it's fucking weird people are weird i love all of you listening thank you so much for listening support the podcast subscribe you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't
1: know. The only thing I... is, if it goes too long, I should probably go and tell the, the girlfriend. She's being kind enough to, like, cook dinner for me because I'm being, like, interviewed and everything. <laughs>
0: that's why Ash and Shazan um, had to end last night. He's like, the yeah. wife's got dinner on the table. I'm like, oh, I, that's I cool. basically have to
1: tell her, like, not to, not to put it on the oven yet.
0: Do it. Tell, her, right. tell her we're going to chill out for a bit.
1: Okay, well, do I get, like, a, do I get a couple minutes?
0: Yeah, I'll pause. I'll hit pause.
1: Okay, I'll back in Ooh. a few All right, I'm back.
0: You're back. We're recording. Yeah. Yeah, um, What can I say?
1: It looks like somebody might actually be breaking Um, into our neighbor's house, but I'm not 100% sure.
0: Well, uh, crazy. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I mean, how close are you to the Chaz or the Chop?
1: Oh, not, not close at all. Um, I know it's like...
0: That. Is that even there anymore? It's like cancelable to even mention it. When that was happening, I wrote to my old uh, high school classmates who live in Seattle. I was like, yo, man, are you guys okay? What's going on up there? He's like, everything's fine. And if you think yeah. it isn't, you have a problem. I'm like, rare, okay. SJW <laughs> I mean, much, man. I wasn't implying anything politically. You know me, I'm Canadian. You're the American here. I got no bone in the... no bone in the fight? What's the phrase?
1: I took the opposite tack when that was happening and and just started posting on Facebook that yeah, the anarchists have taken over Seattle and literally every (laughs) building is on fire and there's um, wolves that drive around in tanks. I totally did. And uh, yeah, wolves drive in tanks and Um. it's literally illegal to not break the law because the anarchists have taken over.
0: Oh, God. Um, oh, God. Yeah, there God. were
1: just a few broken windows. That was about it.
0: What, what a mess. But it was a mess. It, it's, well, America is sort of a mess right now. We're all praying yeah. that you guys, you know. I mean, I can't visit it. Like, we can't visit America right now. Like, well, we cared not No, I know. We, we come can't visit back, anywhere. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, yeah. I mean, the do world we want is to like talk no about the world and dystopia or, or what?
1: Uh, I don't I'm know. Sort of,
0: I'm sort of over it, <laughs> you yeah. know. Like, uh, a China. I don't know if you know this, but China bought Canada. Like, they actually bought us for the next 35 what? years. Yeah. Oh yeah, we sold them all our natural resources for the next 35 years. I had no idea. Oh yeah, and Vancouver's like been been bought for a long time before that now, which is like I've I've been like a huge fan of Asian culture since I was a wee kid, right? So like, I don't have like I sort of love it. But I am aware of the problems arising from a foreign country owning our country. Because, like, you know, they spiked our rents, they artificially inflated our rents by buying like 70% of our our domicile buildings and residencies and not letting oh, live them live in them. Yeah. So yeah. so my rent went from 2010 to 20 well in tw- I lived in the same place and they just they threw us all out. They've they mass renovated everyone I knew. Oh. And then when we tried to move back in, they had raised our rent from a thousand dollars to like six thousand dollars. So we couldn't go in, and then they were only renting it to Asians. And it's like, okay, <laughs> I, this is a problem. <laughs> like that's an actual problem, right? Because <laughs> like we can't find anywhere to live. <laughs> and yeah. it's not it's not the people doing this, it's the government. This is the Chinese government. And uh And that's just a problem. I don't know what the solution is, but like most of us know it's, it's too late. Like the, I I think a lot of me and my friends are like, the battle's already over. And so let's all, uh, let's do some DMT and chill out. (laughs) I don't know what (laughs) else to say, man. I don't want to be complacent, but I also don't want to be like, um, I don't want to be banging my head against the wall, you know, life's too short. Yeah. Yeah. Totally short. And I have all this cool stuff I can do in the privacy of my own home inside a ritual circle so it's like but at the same time i don't want to just go quietly into that dark night
1: right Right. Uh, i do
0: want to rage against things but it's a balance it's a it's it's like you got to pick your battles say
1: yeah yeah it's true there's only so much you can do yeah try to write deviant literature (laughs) 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 that will completely transform the world
0: I do like writing deviant literature. I, I I actually wrote my first novel during grad school uh, while my marriage was falling apart. I banged out a 500 page novel. Just I was like, what the? Oh fuck? wow. Who? Yeah, right. I was like, well, if I'm going to do it, I'm going <laughs> to do it. Yeah. So I wrote between uh, September and January, February, while my marriage was falling apart, while I was doing like 23 credit hours in grad school in seminary, actually, and. I just banged it out. I just like ejaculated it into existence and I've never read it. One friend of mine read it and now it's part of my stolen library. That's gone from me. Hence the question about that demon who might help me get my shit back.
1: Well, I, like, I think every writer has, you know, like stuff that they never want to, like I, I have a novel I wrote that I would never ever even dream of publishing. Um, I, like, I, th- I think you have to have that. Like
0: you do, you do a lot of my novels that i couldn't face myself editing again or reading i like there's like seven of my novels on amazon but they're under a pen name actually i don't think i've actually mentioned this before they're under a pen name no one no one who's listening to this knows the pen name none of them probably oh, nice. even know that i have any novels out there but they are out there um oh that's awesome and if you were really clever you might find them if because there's like a subtle hint in the name to Frater RC, and I won't say more. Because you shouldn't read them. You shouldn't read them. One of them is actually like hardcore erotica, like hardcore.
1: Oh, yeah. That's interesting. I was just thinking as you were saying that. I There was a friend of mine, who was an ex-roommate of mine, that had written, I uh, think it was back in, in the 80s, had written four gay detective novels. Um, <laughs> were from, no, you poisoning. didn't. Yeah, and totally... <laughs> Um, that's what he wrote. And, you know, he, they got published, and uh, he wrote them under a pseudonym, and he would not tell me what the pseudonym was. And he said that they were not very good. And I was well, yeah. like, I'm going to find them. And he kept dropping hints, but it's like, there are thousands of things. To, I mean, it's just like, that's a genre, you know? There's lots and lots and lots of stuff that was published. Um, so, I mean, I, I never found it. I always knew that if I if I said the title of one of his pieces, he wouldn't be able to keep it off of his face. i I totally know if I got it, but... Yeah. I could never figure it out. Yeah.
0: yeah, I, That's I desperately wanted to read it. Yeah,
1: <laughs> The worse he said that it was, the more I wanted to read it.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I do want to, like... I've never been able... I've never been good at editing my own fiction, you know? Um, it's like... So, like, the way I write... I'm a pantser. And when I write a novel, it's usually I'm writing a novel that I want to read. So I write it yeah. to read it. And then when it's done... I don't want to reread it. I really enjoyed writing it, which is reading it, and and that's it. And the way I do it usually is, my process is like write till I pass out every single day. So basically, <laughs> I'll I'll produce like a hundred hundred pages a week, and I'll, oh wow. there'll be like two three hundred pages, and then I'm done, and that's it.
1: Yeah, so I'm a slow writer. I do like five hundred words a day is about my goal. I almost never make it.
0: Yeah, I no, no end I'm up like i this
1: writing, so it adds up.
0: Its 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 processes are different. I remember uh, one of my favorite writers, Neil Stevenson, fellow Seattleite. He's a mm-hmm. from your city, right? Um, I heard him comment in Vancouver at a workshop once. He was just like, "Don't compare yourself to other writers. Just do what works for you, whatever works." Cause, and that was good for me to hear because a, a lot of people like try to be like other people, and I just like I would go days or weeks or months without being able to write a word, but then I can bang out five ten thousand words a day. And i would oh, yeah. I would try it I would try and but I would burn out after a few weeks and right, and I was like thinking, I should balance this out, I should find a way to balance this out." but when he said that, I was like, "You know what, don't balance it like that's how you are, like when you yeah. get an idea into your head and when the fire is bright enough inside you, you fucking go and that's i just I just stopped worrying about it after that, and as a result, I banged out tons and tons of novels um they're just not necessarily worth reading to anyone but me.
1: <laughs> Weirdly, I find the editing process to be one of the most pleasurable parts. Um, I, I would like love I, to
0: discover that, man. I'd love to discover that. I'm so no, good at editing my academic work, like like a fiend, but when it comes to fiction, I just don't want to edit it.
1: It feels like... So when I get to the editing, the hard part has been done. Um, and I know if there's a section that doesn't work, I can always... It's like sculpting. It's, it's almost like a physical thing. Kind of going back to that... Um, the idea of of reading being like, I, I'm writing a, about a poet now, and one of the things she says. Um, uh, in fact, I, I keep looking at a picture of Clarice Lispector, and that's my model for the poet. One of the things she says is poetry is meant to be re- meant to be read with the body. It's it's not an intellectual thing.
0: Yes, and yes. Editing for me well is like it's very
1: physical. Um, it's sensual and physical, and it's just a matter of like I'll take a section and just go over it again and again and again sculpt it it's so pleasurable um make it just perfect and come back to it the next day you know and then step away from it for a while come back to it a few weeks later um yeah it's it's i I never really before i had done it i never really thought that writing could be so so much of a sensual exercise um but yeah it really is it's interesting that part of it especially i
0: would like to i would like to tap into that for myself that would be good I, i i hope i can in the future Yeah. I I edited novels that I wrote for other people. I so I was a ghostwriter, hardcore ghostwriter for many years. Yeah. So if I was getting paid like 20 grand to write a book for someone over three months, then I'd give them a really good piece of work because they were paying well. Like that's good money, right? And then it's no problem because you're making so much money. But for the novels that were just for me. Uh, it was hard because I knew they weren't necessarily going to make money. I certainly knew I was not going to go mainstream publisher. Just like all my friends, I've had friends who worked at major publishers my whole life, and they're always like, "Don't go, it. With- don't do it. Don't do oh, it." Yeah. Like you, like they. You don't realize like like the average book from a mainstream publisher sells four hundred and forty copies a year, and you get a
1: buck. God, I wish my book sold that much. <laughs> but you only get a buck. <laughs> Maybe will <go> to- <laughs> You can't spend know, six
0: but- months writing something or. That that only makes you four hundred dollars a year.
1: Well, not if you're trying to live off of it. But uh, no, yeah. I, I would never try to live my writing. That'd be crazy. Making. I, I don't think I would want my um, my source of income to be something that that's tied to my creativity. Uh, so, I mean, I work a day job, and that's where all my money comes in. So, if I lose money on writing, uh, I'm I'm fine with that. Um, I just want you know to get it out to as many people that would like it as I can. Um, hmm. On the yeah, other course. hand, I mean, I'm not really inspired to try to go to a major publisher. I, I don't want them to make me choose a stupid title and cut out like all of the good stuff oh, I, and explain could, everything and hold readers' hands. I, I could
0: never let someone dictate a title to me, and they always yeah, I've, I've heard that. Of
1: horror stories as far as that
0: goes. I I, I I would I just couldn't I couldn't I couldn't no no God damn it. What's yeah, up? With, we got to get rid of these and, suits, these middlemen trying to like run the yeah. show. They don't have a creative bone in their body.
1: Yeah. yeah. What, one of the things that it, I think kind of happened at some point is uh, at one point there was a the major publishers, really, really small time, like zine level publishing. And then there was kind of a, a big middle ground. Uh, and the impression that I've been given is that the middle ground is kind of evaporated. Um, like before I ever got into, into the scene and now there's really just as really small presses and, and much bigger ones and there's no, and then, then, you know, if you want to make a step from one to the other, you got to kind of become part of the club and, you know, whatever, uh, it's, it's, it's largely about schmoozing and all that. And I, I just have no desire to do that. I mean, I, I love the idea of having my work distributed more. Um, what I would really like to see is to see that middle ground built out again, um,
0: that would be great. I don't, I don't
1: really know why it yeah. really evaporated, or what would have to happen to get it back. But
0: well, I mean, I think you know why it evaporated,
1: right? Well, probably something to do with money. Uh, corporate yeah, greed, right.
0: Like know. yeah, like the corporate. So the big, the major five publishers—they're just six publishers. They're just they're they're basically playing roulette. They're just they're just they buy all these books, publish a bunch of them, and and hope some of them hit the jackpot. But they're not in for right. the long run and they're just looking for those flash in the pans and that's where they make all their money. So if you're not one of the flash in the pans, they forget you and they're contractually obligated to stop promoting your book after 3 months. Because oh, wow. they're because they're contractually obligated to promote the next author's books coming down the pipe. So after three months, you're fucked. And even getting copies of your own book can be a problem. They won't even support you on book tours, even if you fund them yourselves. It'll be like pulling tooth teeth. It's like it's like in the music business, which I know a lot more about, actually, than publishing. It's like you want to stay independent because these otherwise you're just basically just... It's a crapshoot.
1: Yeah, I've seen horror stories kind of unfold with some of the major occult publishing houses. Really? They change the title, they change the cover, they cut out half the text, and then... They let your book go out of print, but they have rights for X number of years, which means that you have to languish in obscurity. You can't even reprint your work, uh, which is nightmarish. You know examples
0: of that happening?
1: yeah but I, I probably shouldn't say them oh, <laughs> like cool. any kind of public forum yeah it's happened to some friends of mine actually On, no um, one's yeah, listening to
0: us talk man no one's listening to this uh
1: i just I <laughs> no i'm joking i'm joking
0: thousands <laughs> okay. of people listen to this it's stupid don't even think about how many people are going to listen to this conversation i i couldn't i actually was so nervous to talk to ash and chassan last night that i, I had a couple tokes of weed before and it hit me okay, so I, hard because i don't smoke weed hardly much anymore like i buy like a gram a week literally a gram a week mm-hmm. max so but you know which is not much there's very little like there was a there was a couple years of my life i think i could go through a quarter in a day but like and i'm not a weed smoker so like and i was i think i still did a good job in the interview but like i was definitely i was nervous because he's ashton shasan and i have a lot of respect for the guy and he blew me away more than i expected him to blow me away Oh yeah, yeah. You know what I mean. So yeah, hopefully, do that. I... the the fact that I made him laugh a few times was my success, and that's that's what's great. He's already got more listens than any other podcast I've ever done because it's fucking ash and Shasan, Let's face it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like seriously, yeah. I mean, I've got, I have no I've problem. Later this month.
1: Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. I have no problem with doing For like a more. podcast interview that hardly anybody will listen to. I mean, I I put out books that only like a hundred people read. So like I literally the um, the hardcover books that I put out with uh, with a lot of the small presses. Uh, are so limited that i mean there there'll be like eighty to hundred and twenty copies like literally not that many people can read them.
0: you can make more money um, actually even doing it that way, plus you're producing a much more beautiful book like yeah, and that's the reason why covers. they're so limited
1: it, it would yeah. just be too expensive to to print more of them um, you know the the people that print them they don't make a lot of money off of them they kind of barely come out above above even um, so they print as many as they can, you know and that's that's what they do.
0: Yeah, I I've, I've never done that, but my next book is coming out like uh 100 copies leather bound and I'm I'm going to I'm excited about that. I'm putting a lot of work into it as a result. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's going to be sexy. And it's I've got I, I it's I've got it all laid out and planned and local bookbinder doing it and all that shit. I'm holding off on the main book that I'm putting out, which is on the tea party, which is a band you oh, might yeah. probably have not heard of. But no, no. Anyway, that's, that's going to be a, a big deal, but I'm holding off on that for legal reasons, shall we say tax reasons? Hmm. I don't know. Like who knows, but yeah, that's uh, it's exciting being a writer, isn't it? Isn't it just exciting to be a writer? Like for those who are people, I know there's a lot of people who listen to this podcast that want to get into the kind of stuff that you and I specifically do. And I'd like to, this podcast to encourage people to do the kinds of stuff that that I do and that my guests do, because the barrier for entry, I think, a lot of people are living lives of quiet desperation, for lack of a better phrase. I mean, that's a great phrase, right? And I, mm-hmm. I would like, to, I do like to see this podcast as as maybe encouraging people to just just do it. Yeah, go full. Shia I mean, we're writing.
1: And occultism, yeah. You just have to just, just do it start doing it. Like
0: like don't like if you have to put Hevav Vavhe and Ehe and all the divine names on the walls on pieces of paper and then walk through the rich with the LBRP really mechanistically and half-assed, fucking do it. Like just start doing it.
1: Yeah, and the best students, I mean the ones that really excel, um, are the ones that uh, have been doing it on their own. They just, they just, they're, they're going to do it, and nothing is going to stop them. Uh, the the most successful students are the ones that probably don't even need a teacher. If there was no teacher, they'd probably just figure it out on their own. Um, that said, there's always the dictum that, like, well, you can judge a teacher by the success of their students, which I think is not true. I think in in a way, it's kind of the opposite. Uh, that you, I wouldn't want to say absolutely the opposite, but as a teacher, the people that I feel like I've been able to help the most are the people that absolutely. Could not figure out how to do it on their own, and they may never be like the most successful occultist, but at least they're going to get something out of it. And by teaching them, you know, you, you allow them to have experiences and tap into the mysteries in a way that they would never otherwise get to do. Um, yeah. the people that just absolutely don't get it, you know, they that's that's where I think, um, it's the most unglamorous aspect of teaching and definitely not the most fun. Although, it's also when you have a student like that and you really go through that level of work with them you know and you you really bring them through their difficulties you form an intense bond with them and that's that's really rewarding but uh
0: yeah you know i, I the hundreds of hours i put in sometimes to an individual student when i was running temple to hooty in the latter days mm-hmm. i know a lot of them didn't continue on to become great magicians or anyone of note but that was never on my mind all that was on my mind is you know, can I teach this person how to work with tatwas? You know, can yeah, can what's, what's I teach the next them? Step? Can you do? Can that? I can I get them into this ritual? And, and really, even beyond just, can I help them learn these ritual techniques? Can I get them in touch with their true self, with that spark of the divine? Can I help them leave, lead, uh, you know, have life, life and life abundant, as it says in the Bible? Right, you know, sometimes
1: it's as simple as, like, can you get them to experience, like, the forces of nature, the elemental forces? Yes. A lot of people, yeah. you know, they're not psychically open at all when they first get into this, and it's so hard for them to uh, to really just connect to it. Uh, other people, you know, they're, like, psychically open from day one, and they just yeah. go right into it. But sometimes just getting somebody into that, that basic of a level of experience, it's revelatory for them because they... You know, I've worked with some people that have been studying occultism all their life, but had never been able to make it work, or just never had the temerity to get up and start doing it. And when you get them into even just the basic steps, you know, it's it's, it's a major thing.
0: The people Um, I always found who had the most trouble were the ones who were less content to um, focus on the basics.
1: Oh yeah, getting yeah, it totally makes sense. Have yeah, you noticed that? Yeah, you have to you have to work with it very patiently. What what I always say is, if people aren't excited by just doing their basic elemental invocations, unless they've already been doing it for years and then they're ready to go onto something else, obviously. Um, but if somebody's just starting out and they really get that elemental hit, you know, uh, if that's not exciting, then the whole thing is really not for them. You know, it, it, even the initial exercises should be exciting, and especially when the juices really start flowing and. You start getting occult forces, uh, you start really getting to able to tap into them. Uh, and then even more so when you start getting into the visionary work. Um, if that's not something that in and of itself is worth all of the work, then it's, you've got to kind of question, you know, what's, what's the person really in it for? Absolutely. And how excited are they going to be, even with mm. the advanced stuff? Yeah, is right, it just a sensationalism thing. Like uh,
0: one, of my, one of my buddies who went through the seven equals four initiation, which is not done by most orders, right? He went through that with Frater Yeshi, the head of his order, when he was in it. But he was, oh, yeah, I know yeah. that guy. Yeah. And now, a word from our sponsors. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do, since they help keep this. Project alive. You can also get ad free content and bonus content and videos and a private web page by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week, or six dollars a month, or fifty for the year. It helps a lot, plus, you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. Oh, uh, well, uh, sh- damn it! I this is—you've just created the first moment on my podcast where I'm going to have to bleep something. Oh my god! god oh damn!
1: Am I not supposed to? I'm sorry, totally bleep that. Oh.
0: So he and I are friend friends. Like we go to the same weddings of our mutual friends, and I know him oh, very yeah. well. Where, I didn't
1: realize that he wasn't like well known. Under no, his, his he, name. He, I totally. He, he's very.
0: Yeah, well, he's well. He's a banker, right? And uh, oh god, no, I, I didn't yeah. even know. I'm going to have to bleep that, and now I'm going to have to bleep, yeah, bleep all it. this. Oh my god. Bleep, bleep, you
1: really only had to bleep the part where I said his name. Exactly, uh,
0: but oh my god, you did it! He's a
1: he's a he's a good person that I've talked he's, to him quite a bit uh, about. Yeah, and, yeah, he's so he's my homie.
0: You know, we hang out at Big Bad John's in Victoria and, and have drinks and talk shit and and I, I love him very much. Um, but anyway, <laughs> this other guy who he, he actually put a couple of his students through the six five and seven four, and, uh, this and one of the guys, this guy, he's on Instagram. Um, I can't, I shouldn't, now, now I'm all, now you've got me all concerned about what I should say and shouldn't say I'm flustered. I'm flustered. Anyway, so my buddy who's, a, who went through the seven, four initiation, six, in five, which is really cool. Like to me, that's just really cool. I'm not saying that to build yeah. them up or anything. I'm just saying like not many of us adepts go are in orders to do those initiations. Like that wasn't even an option in, 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 the, in the, in the morning star. Or in Golden Dawn International or Temple Two, that we didn't do that. We just didn't. We didn't believe in grades beyond five six, except for like honorary. You know, like when I was the head yeah. of the Golden Dawn in Canada, I was an honorary seven four, right? I was honorarily that the chief adept, but I hadn't gone through those initiations because we didn't do Stella Matutina stuff. We intentionally tried to stick with more Alpha and Omega stuff blah 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 anyway but but my buddy he was he went through the 4 and all this stuff and he he always points out to me he's like man all, most of depth work is scrying it's like not not that glamorous and i was start. i was talking i was like well what's your favorite way of scrying do you use this tool do you use a, a mirror or a crystal ball or a, or a copper bowl with water he's like i don't use shit for scrying
1: I was <laughs> like, that's like me i don't either i was like
0: yeah then i was like oh shit i'm so used to talking to um you know, less experienced people. It's like, of course you don't. And like, I don't Uh, like when I, when I work with crystal balls or black or black mirrors or crystal or water bowls, it's a, it's almost a gimmick. It's like, it's like a little spice. It's like throwing in a, it's like bringing a toy into sex play, you know, it's like (laughs) fun, but not necessary at all. Sex is just as good without any toys, you just need two naked bodies, right? Well, but, the thing
1: about scrying is that I find that um, the idea of looking into something and seeing something isn't not nearly as exciting to me as just closing my eyes and going into it. Because exactly, when, uh, exactly. when you do that, it's immersive. You know, see, you're now there. you're
0: talking like a real adept. That's what that's what adepthood should mean. Yeah,
1: it's like, do you want to see this little movie on a little mirror, or do you want to like be in the movie? <laughs> it's like, I want, I want to be in the movie.
0: And that was something I almost wanted to get in with into with Ashton Shasan because he's such a fan of of this trait method of of drawing spirits into crystals and a lot of people are into the tools and I don't want to poo-poo that you know at, at all be, but but I wonder sometimes if these grimoire people are a little too bound to their tools. And like you know if you I, I wonder sometimes and I want to say this with as much humility as I can like I wonder sometimes if 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 they're not over complexifying something that could be a lot simpler. But at the same time you, if you simplify it too much, you get people who are just sometimes a little wishy-washy, and next thing you know, they're full-on natural psychic astral junkie, just like spouting off every feeling and thought that comes into their head, without any testing, yeah, yeah, or trial. You know,
1: that's where kind of a rigid, um, you know, militant uh, scout-like um, training period comes in really handy.
0: Well, that—that's um, you your, really your golden dawn. And- that's your golden dawn training. Speaking, I think. Oh, that's it the, totally is. Yeah, that's the, you're an initiate of of a rigorous system, and uh, and and I know there's points. I wish I had made some notes when I listened to your podcast with the uh, Praxis of the Obscure, because there was points where I was like, I should be taking notes on what I'm going to ask you, but at, at the same time, I also want to just enjoy the conversation, you know. I to, I was, it was an immersive conversation. But, yeah, so, like, there was times at which you talked about the Golden Dawn system like it was something that maybe just needed to be done away with. But, but now you're talking about it like it's something that you got a lot out of.
1: Oh, I absolutely got a lot out of it. But, I, I mean, again, I went through a very heretical Golden Dawn training. Same um,
0: about why it's heretical.
1: Well, the, as I said, the in order was moved into the out order. Um, my teachers had created. That's not a heresy. System.
0: That's not heresy. That's just normal and, development.
1: Oh, I only call it heresy because you know that's a fun. lot of the time you'll talk to, to people, people that are in the Golden Dawn about that kind of thing, and they'll say, "Well, that's not Golden Dawn," and I'll say, but you're correct. It's not."
0: <laughs> and, well, yes, um, it's R&AC. So you know, did you they, go through they, a five six?
1: Uh, no, no. In fact, the teachers that I had never did anything other than the neophyte initiation. Oh, that's uh, right. And I didn't you mentioned that the, even the elemental initiations until um, I got involved with another temple um, that was based on the OSOGD, and we we did all the uh, elemental initiations. That's
0: uh, that was that was w- Wells uh,
1: Temple of Light and Darkness was what it was called.
0: Yeah, it, I was just living near there, right in Santa Rosa um he's there what's the name they're a bunch of lawyers like silicon valley guys right
1: you mean the osogd people
0: the open the source S- yeah. sam
1: webster was webster guy.
0: not wells webster, know, yeah. webster webster yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah
1: we weren't officially uh, affiliated with them or anything but uh, we were using their template and then as initiation went you know as we went from initiation to initiation we changed it we ended up kind of changing it back to the, the golden dawn style um but uh, and then when I started my own temple, I just started using the straight up golden dawn initiations. Izavi
0: um, Zaleski. Exactly. Yeah. So my old my old roommate from Temple Tahuti, he runs Zaleski's order. Oh, does he really? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I haven't even been all of the different temples and stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of them out there now.
1: So, yeah, I mean, you certainly don't have to, um, I mean, being, having a very um, structured and very self-disciplined um, training period, it certainly isn't specific to the Golden Dawn. I mean, uh, I think, um, you know, you could be, you could work with the Grimoires and have that. In fact, uh, if you look at uh, Peter Carroll's first book, I guess his second, it's one, it's either Libra Null or Psychonaut, I don't remember. So long since I love Chaos Magic,
0: books. man. I love Chaos Magic.
1: Yeah. I was into it a lot when I was younger, but he, I mean, he outlined a fairly rigorous self-training system um, that works along much the same lines. You know, it, it gives you structure; it's systematic enough to make sure that you work with everything. Um, and uh, but yeah, I benefited I benefited from that tremendously. That uh, that very structured, very regimented um, system, and and you know, it, just working every day like that. Um, on these elemental and planetary rituals, at this point, I mean, it's extremely easy for me to get into the temple headspace uh, with just from anywhere, just with no thought, just because I've, I did it every day for so long. Um, there's just a lot of a lot of benefits that come from that.
0: Yeah, like the, like the buddy I was referring to, the seven four guy. He 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 likes to hammer on the point like that. Golden Dawn is really the only. He says it's the only empirical training system for magic and i like Hmm. to think of it as empirical ish (laughs) empirical ish yeah it's still still magic right yeah 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 right no (laughs) i know exactly but i knew what he meant when he said it that way right but he then also was like you know he thinks that tatwas should be introduced in neophyte and because scrying is the main thing especially in inner order work and and i was like wow i've never heard anyone say that tatwa's and scrying should be introduced in neophyte but i i think i might agree with you and i thought about it for a few months and and now i do agree with him i'm like i think what if in neophyte you you scry all the five basic tatwas and then in each of the elemental grades you scry the sub elements of all of those elemental tatwas per the grade that sort of has an elegance to it systematically doesn't it
1: well you have to learn how to scry first though
0: Exactly, yeah, um, right? Well, and normally, like the way itself, I was I mean. trained, so the way I was trained, you didn't even learn to scry till practicus.
1: No, I didn't get to the point where I could even really do it until, um, I could kind of do it, but uh, I worked almost entirely with forces, with um, in you know, invoking the elements and the planets and the zodiacal signs and invoking deities and stuff like that. Uh, and my astral sight, it was kind of half there, it didn't really click until a certain point. I'd been doing it for about uh, 10 years, and it was like when I first got into occultism. It just flicked on like a light switch. There were, there were things that I did to make that happen. I was working with the Enochian system, and specifically with some water spirits, and there was this whole drama that played out around it involving a Mormon friend of mine that turned into my seer. who's was interesting. But oh, awesome. when the floodgates opened, they opened with a holy vengeance, and um, mm-hmm. that was about 20 yeah. years ago. And now doing visionary work is just like the most normal thing. It just became... I, I just dove into it uh, with Reckless Abandon. It, it just became, you know, the new the new level to work with. Okay, how old and then are you? later there was the, another level. That can I ask how old you are? You? I, how, how old are you? Uh, 48. Jesus, I had the impression
0: that you were like 28 or 30. Really? Something, yeah. <laughs> My I, voice I was know. a
1: lot more booming when I was that young. I feel like... You're 48? Oh,
0: yeah. Jesus, I don't know why I thought you were a young father. <laughs> Well, it just that's shows how young it shows it shows how timeless you become once you discover the Philosopher's Stone.
1: I think I'm kind of in better shape now than I was I was when I was 28.
0: I keep getting younger every year.
1: Yeah, yeah, I feel younger than I did when I was 28. But then 28 that's also the beginning of the Saturn return. You're supposed to feel old for a little while when you're between 28 and 30, and then you kind of get over that if yeah, all goes I, well.
0: I just turned 40 on January 31st.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's it's a, young. I mean, it's that's
0: a brave new world.
1: My my dad is like seventy two. He's like Indiana Jones. If I look as good as my dad when I'm fifty, I'm gonna be just amazed. Like he, he's just like incredibly in, in good shape.
0: Yeah, my dad's sixty eight, no gray hairs, and a full head of hair, and I'm bald. So like, fuck, I'm totally guy. bald, man. But he's never he's never had a smoke or a drink of anything or done anything in his life except transcendental meditation. Nonstop.
1: Oh yeah, that'll totally do it. Though he's also—I just get the impression yeah. a piece of shit. Oh really? <laughs> you
0: know, on the other end, of the- yeah, he's like, like I, I, I mean that literally, like, like a dick. He's literally, like, yeah, he's a he's a dick. So he's oh, like wow. hardcore. Yeah, like, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, like, you know what I mean? Like, legit terrible person.
1: I said, love him this, very that's much. It's like a good thing that this isn't a live radio show with questions, because you would get a caller and <laughs> be your dad disguising his voice. Dude, what else my, do you think about your dad? Why would you I, like to not have any inheritance? He
0: he, <laughs> he and I were texting uh, frequently and having a nice conversation, sending each other pictures of the full moon up until COVID, and then he stopped responding to me. And I asked my mom oh, my. why he was stopped responding to me. She said, well, it's because since COVID he feels like Clearly you're stuck in California and you're in, you're, you're not in a, you know, in a safe environment and it's just too much for him to handle. So he thinks it's best that you don't ever talk again.
1: Oh man, that's unfortunate. That's a dick, right?
0: That's a dick. (laughs) Like that's what you call a dick. And it's like, okay, I did text him on my 40th birthday. I'm like, yo, I just, it's my birthday. I turned 40. He wrote back, congratulations. (laughs) That's it yeah whatever whatever you got to become your own father at some point right yeah so it's cool you have a you have a a dad you admire
1: oh yeah yeah totally yeah yeah it's my dad that put the work ethic in me he's he's one like a super super hard worker um i think he was also kind of my uh when i was like a teenager i did a lot of psychedelic drugs uh, and I was yeah, aware you, that you my were dad mentioning had done that as well. So you were mentioning yeah, that, so, uh, that you,
0: the psychedelics, sort of like Ryan, as well on the uh, of behind the obscure, your entrance into magic was in some ways sort of through psychedelics.
1: Yeah. Um, Do you think like that's remember- why
0: you avoid using psychedelics in ritual work because it's uh, too much of a throwback to that other time?
1: I, I don't really think so. No, no, I think it's just it's just different. I just. Um, I just kind of cover different bases with them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't think that's really it. Yeah. It's shot um, in the dark. Yeah. Maybe it is, and it's like unconscious, and I'm not aware of it. But I, I don't. It doesn't feel like that.
0: One thing I actually wanted to say to Ash and Chasan the other night when we were talking about psychedelics was like, psychedelics does uh, or entheogens, cannabis, whatever, makes ritual work harder just to be clear for anyone listening, it doesn't make ritual work easier. Like you should be really, like, even though I know a lot, my, all the basic rituals I do, like all the, the core ritual work I do, I know it very well, but on psychedelics, I'll make mistakes. Like you can, you can quickly correct them. Of course, wrong, wrong shape, wrong divine. but like psych entheogens makes it harder. It's harder to focus. And and I do one of the things I like about entheogens and ritual work is it it challenges your focus, your willpower, your imagination. It challenges you to be even more in that point of single singular presence in where you are in the be here now sense. Because you've got to be even more focused. But it's not easier. When I did Enochian and working with Lon this one time. Um, I got stoned with Chris Bennett beforehand and I was like, fuck it, fuck it. I'm going to get stoned with Chris Bennett, this cool, mm-hmm. famous author and do a work with, of scrying the scrying text, the 30th, eighth year of text with lawn. And I, and I had an amazing experience with lawn and it was very, it, I could say a lot about it. There was a lot of verifications, blah, 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 but it was harder. It was much, much harder than normal. When I'm sober, doing ritual work and scrying is is incredibly easy. But under any sort of influence, it's much harder. And it's not necessarily more profound. It can be actually less profound because it's harder to focus.
1: You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. It's just hard. Yeah, sometimes even just ritual can make ritual harder. I mean, there are times (laughs) where you get hit so hard with the energy, so strongly, and you get so high from it, basically. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, That it's hard to keep it together, you know, Um, and you you just, you get, you know, it just, it just depends on, you. sometimes you get hit with a really strong energy and it actually makes it easier and it's like the ritual does itself through you, you don't even have to think about it. Other times you get hit and it just throws you way out there and um, you have to ground yourself just to go to the next step, just to remember what comes next.
0: Yeah. Are you a fan of uh, prolonged ritual work, like long 12, 24-hour rituals?
1: Uh, I've done a little bit of stuff like that. Not 24 hour or anything, but, um, we yeah, have, not really. Like, I,
0: we, we had 24 hour rituals, like mandatory twice a year in our order. Oh,
1: really? Wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah. For like, well, like, like we're talking hardcore RR at AC, like Jesus, Christian Rosenkreuz sort of stuff. Right. You know, like solstices, yeah, yeah. like, you know, the whole inner orders, they're doing vigils with mandatory, but like for me, what I've found the, the, the thing I got out of that the best that the most that really was useful was the idea of doing a 12 hour period, especially sunset to sunrise is a very powerful magical time, right? But a 24 hour mm-hmm. thing as well, because you can, you can structure your framework in advance so that you have something you do on the hour, every hour with the same being. And sure. then you have some contemplation, some study time, whether you're reading the gospels or, or, scrying a series of like you know 24 hours you could do a different uh you could do all the major arcana easily and then you, know, you could open with something for the first hour then for the next 22 you could do every tarot card and then close up for the 24th hour with something a closing thing that actually just popped into my head but like you can do those sort of things and then have a bit of leeway with other magicians who are doing the ritual with you to talk contemplate Diary it. Diarying it, of course, can take like easy 30 minutes to diary a 10 minute mm-hmm. experience. So I do I do think there's a lot to be said, but doing it all the time, of course, is not feasible. But I, I do like the intense long ritual work. I was initiated into the do you know Nineveh Shadrach? Uh doesn't sound familiar now. He does all the Jinn books, all the Jinn magic stuff. He started Temple to Hudi oh, yeah, okay. in the mid 90s. And he was the one who brought me into the Golden Dawn. He's the one who gave me the motto, Frater R.C. He scried it from my higher self or oh, nice. Akashic Records. Yeah, R.C. just means Rumpens Katane, right? Which is Latin for broken of chains. I had no idea there was even a connection to the goddess Isis with breaker of chains at that time. But he, he introduced me. He's the one who got me into the order. I was 15 at the time. I was very young. I was, it was an exceptional oh, yeah. exceptional situation. But he always promoted arduous ritual work like you know hour two hour long middle pillars uh invocations oh, yeah. oh, where
1: see that length of time that's that's about the sweet spot for me it Man. is the
0: sweet spot right like i noticed Damian Eccles was mentioning doing like the analysis of the keyword not just once or the hexagram ritual not just once but do it like three four or five times and people are like oh my god now it makes sense it's like yeah yeah, we, we don't just do things once. I was I was doing a pathworking class on Sunday, and I went through a diary entry from 1998 with people. And at the end of the diary entry, after doing a pathworking of uh, one of the, I think, Sadi or Kof, I, I, I read out that I said that I did the final release. But then I noted that it said times three. That's interesting, right? It's like, okay, for some reason, and I guarantee you very rarely have I ever repeated a final release but at that instance i did a final release apparently three times in a row but that's so so uh... real that's so real right like that makes sense And any anyone who really practices this shit knows like okay that really tells me something it tells me that you did a final release and you just felt like you it wasn't didn't work (laughs) or or you needed to do more Mm. and you did it three times and that's, that's, that's one of those signs of real ritual work, in my opinion.
1: I found that with um, invocations and spirit evocations and things like that, a lot of the time uh, it can be incredibly beneficial to repeat the invocation numerous times. And it goes through a whole cycle. You know, you get to the point where it feels like you've repeated it too much times, and it's just going into words. You know, it's just it becomes word salad. And then you get past that, and it can take you into something Uh, beyond, you know, where you were in the initial invocations. It can be a really effective technique.
0: And, you know, that's why I studied St. John of the Cross. He talks about that in a Christian way 500 years ago. But if you think about why he's talking about that, you realize it's like theurgical. He talks Mm -hmm. about doing things to the point where they don't mean anything anymore. And that's the time at which you have to double down, not stop. Right, right. It's cool that this 15th century Spanish mystic would make would notice something like that. That's so pertinent to ritual work, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Uh, See, John of the Cross and uh, Miguel Molinos is the other one that I've gotten a lot of things like that out of. More on the meditation and end of things. Miguel, Miguel Molinos, he wrote the spiritual guide, the very generically titled spiritual guide. Um, okay. He was just another Catholic Catholic mystic um, whose work was very nearly censored by the Catholic Church. Um I found out about him because he's on uh the AA Crowley's AA reading list.
0: Um how do you say the name? Is there is there a debauched way of who, saying it
1: that I might recognize? Oh I have no idea. It's Spanish, Miguel Molinos. Okay. Molinos um, is pretty um yeah, look at the um I
0: don't know AA the really
1: long reading list.
0: Like I mean I I've lived with AA adepts. Um, and talked with them, but I don't know the system at all.
1: Yeah, I've adapted a lot of uh, different aspects of the system kind of for my own work. Usually not specifically Thelemic things, but um, yeah, it's just a different organization, different structure. In fact, I've always compared, like, my teacher's temple was a lot more like an AA temple, both because it focused on -on one-on-one teachings and because um, essentially what, Crowley did was take the inner order and move it into the outer order, and really systematize it, and then add a bunch of yoga and a bunch of Phelema. Um yeah. But it's, it's pretty similar. <clears throat> I've
0: I've I've heard I've heard that there's an opinion these days that AA is the for serious magicians and Golden Dawn is for flake flaky magicians, and when I heard that recently, it was in the last couple of years, I was shocked. I was stunned because I've never actually met an AA adept that knows their shit at all.
1: <laughs> and I'm going to say somebody in the AA probably said that. Probably not somebody in the
0: No, it was someone not in the AA. <laughs> oh, yeah? It was Chris Bennett who wrote, you know, huh. Lever 420. And, and I was talking, you know, we were in the car, and I was like, blah, blah, blah. He was like, blah, blah, blah. I was like, well, that's AA, you know. They're not really, I mean, you don't think they're really that serious. Do you? He's like, I think they're the most serious. I was like, Really? He's like, yeah, I always. And he said to me, I always took it that Golden Dawn was more like sort of fuddy duddy and AA was where it really happens. I was like, I would love to agree with you, but in all my experiences of meeting AA adepts, they don't even know Hebrew. They don't know correspondences. They can't pass a test to save their life. And they don't even know the history of the ritual work. And when they do it, it's like, they, it's, and I'm not trying to shit on AA adepts, even as it sounds like I am. Because I know there's a lot of amazing human beings out there in the AA doing amazing ritual work. Like, that's the thing, right? And, and if anyone listening is a hardcore AA adept, let's talk. But I just found that, like, you know, the one-on-one method, they have this one-on-one method. Like, when I was living in a, a OTO oasis run by AA adepts in Belfast, like, they were asking me to teach because they didn't know any of the stuff I knew, not any of it. They, they had a basic idea of some of the stuff, but they had never even really had a good class on the LBRP. So they were like, please teach us everything you know and teach our OTO members. And I was like, Weird. I thought you guys knew all this shit. They're like, no, we're a religion. We're uh, we're, we're not a, like the Golden Dawn. And I was like, I really was impressed well, by their the humility. I was really impressed by their like, – because that's, that's some – Like, these Irish dudes were fucking awesome. I loved the Belfast OTO people I was living with. I was living there because I moved in with my girlfriend, and she lived in a mansion, and they were all together, right? And I was like, I had a great time with them because they were really cool dudes, and we would all talk about Celtic myths and stay up late in the night smoking cigarettes and reading from Cahalan and the other Ulster cycles of Irish gods, and we had a great time, right? But I was very surprised they didn't have a solid basis of all the ritual work from Golden Dawn, therefore Alistair Crowley. And they didn't. And they were like, cause it's not what we're about. And I was like, really? And that was where my opinion changed. And I realized maybe Temple de all those years I was in the Golden Dawn should have let OTO people in because these are just human beings, just regular human beings. We're all just human beings wanting to do cool magic and learn good magic And we were saying no to them because we thought they were part of this competing magical order, but they weren't. They were just other fucking flesh and blood humans who would have loved to have been part of a rigorous magical college, even though they liked Aleister Crowley and were Thelemites. And I really had this tremendous overwhelming sense of regret that I didn't know this back then, 10 years earlier, when maybe we could have let hundreds and hundreds of OTO people join our order and teach them cool magic and do it rigorously in a rigorous environment. But we didn't because they were OTO. And I <laughs> really regret that so much to this day. I feel like so much sadness over us being so closed-minded in our golden dawn view of the world that we didn't even acknowledge what the OTO was, which was a religion. That sure they like Crowley, so it's like join the Golden Dawn, just don't talk about Crowley all the time. Just like we ask you not to, if you're a Christian, don't talk about Jesus all the time, like oh Jesus, Jesus, you know, like right, that's the idea, yeah.
1: Well, I think too, I mean, so the AA and the OTO, are, I mean, the OTO I would expect that of because they're really not a teaching order at all, exactly. Um, they're an initiatory order and a religion, or the kind of a social base for religion um whereas the aa so there's a bunch of different entities that call themselves the aa um and some people will say you know there's different lineages of the aa but then anybody in the aa will deny that there's any any such thing as different lineages
0: it's as much a shit show well just like in the golden dawn the only true lineage of the golden dawn as we all know is david griffin
1: Oh, sure, of course. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you outed David Griffin. You said his real name. Dude, He, well, yeah, we call him you Gargamel. should beep that, but for we, a totally different reason.
0: Most people call him Gargamel in our order. Yeah, or yeah. In the Golden Dawn. We call him Gargamel and we call Zinc Voldemort. Uh,
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. So, But but you know, Gargamel, David Griffin, actually broke into my home, into Temple Tehudi, while we were in really? the middle of a neophyte initiation. He, he broke in through the front door.
1: That could yeah. possibly be even more insane than the other things i've heard about. <laughs> wow.
0: Like yeah. Oh yeah, like him dressing up in Nazi uniform as a as a Christmas uh, Halloween pro- costume. Yeah. Yeah, no. Just be but
1: glad that, he didn't uh, kill your dog and blame it on the anarchist.
0: Oh my god, did he? He told Frater Yeshi that he came into our temple, marched into the inner temple, stood on the throne of the Hierophant and cursed us and within months we were disbanded. Which I was like, yeah, no, I was like, wow. no, Yeshi, calling him Frater Yeshi, Frater yeah, yeah, yo, 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 yeshy. Um <laughs> I can't believe you made me have to bleep something for the first time ever on this podcast. How dare you Don't say Don't forget
1: something. to bleep that. I feel badly about that. I, I, didn't, I didn't realize that he, uh, he I, he's, I, I he's, have, for some reason, failed. I had it in my head that is... Okay, I added in my head that his name was totally public, but uh, maybe it out.
0: is now. But I, well, I'll text him after this and I'll find out. But like, I think he's like still a little deep because of his job. Like, you know, I'm not public public. That makes sense. I'm like, if yeah. you look into me, or if you listen to all the podcasts, you'll find out my name. People say it all the time on my podcast. I don't believe oh, yeah. it. I don't care. And if you, you know, but like, I, I, I you know, he, I think it's for his first job. For me, it's for uh, my family, like death threats and shit like that, um, and because there's crazy people out there in the occult world. Let's face it; I mean, a lot of them. Uh, but yeah, no, um, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I know. I was like, no, yeshi, uh, gave Griffin. He he got he, the reason. Actually, was the first time I realized why we had a sentinel or a phylax. It's because. The phylax, like, she actually held a claymore to his throat and pushed him back out the door. But that was after the, everyone in the temple had to exit and come see what the disturbance was at the front door. So he, like, you know, broke in, oh, assaulted our phylax, and uh, then told this yarn about how he came in and stood in the temple on the throne of the hierophant. And I'm pretty sure I was the hierophant at that initiation. I might have been the hierist, but who knows. Um, yeah, no, he's, he's, he's a... He's a special case. Um, really, yeah, really doing insane. a lot of damage to the Golden Dawn name. That guy, David Griffin, and what's really sad is oh, yeah. how many people he's roped into his order, um, and who believe his hype. It's really, really sad. Uh, I wish there was something. We I could think that's over. one of
1: the reasons too. I, I mean, I think that uh, uh, there has often been a kind of desire with some people to make the this aspect of occultism more public, and um, you know, make it something that is more kind of part of popular culture. I don't think that would really be very good at all. I kind of enjoy it being very obscure. Uh, I don't think in its its uh, really potent form it could ever really appeal to a lot of people. I think that the only way to make this kind of thing appeal to a lot of people would be to really water it down. Yeah, um,
0: like, like, and, I mean, like so Madonna so many other Tabala. things.
1: Uh, yeah, exactly. There's so many, I mean, this is so true of so many kinds of music and literature and art as well. Uh, with the kind of culture that we live in, there are certain things that are just never going to be really popular. And if you try to make it popular, it's it's just not going to go to a good place. Um, like Madonna you know, we'll with Kabbalah. Down, we'll be... Right, it, right. It's just <laughs> yeah. Sometimes obscurity is, is the best form of protection. Um, yeah. And, I mean, I, I don't really think there's any danger of, you know, Golden Dawn ceremonial magic becoming, or grimoire magic, or any of that stuff becoming this huge popular thing that, Um, At at worst, there might be some really watered-down version that becomes popular for a little while, and then it'll promptly be forgotten again.
0: I just watched a movie uh, the other day, and it's opened with a girl doing, uh, showing a girl doing part of the LBRP.
1: How interesting.
0: Yeah. And uh, she wasn't vibrating the names though. So it's like, come on, do your research or hire me, hire me. And I'll, I'll fix that. Cause I, have, you can go to occult.consulting. Occult.www.occult.consulting. And you can get my film work. Cause I, I consulted on supernatural for the last season. And so like, oh, yeah. I love doing, I think they could use more actual occultists helping them find cool ways to make their cinematic occultism more realistic or more interesting, at least more interesting, like more more layered semiotically, you know. But uh, it was this new movie they have based on H.P. Lovecraft's story, uh, "The Colors from Space," or some yeah. It's really good. The from space, it's actually yeah. yeah, it's really good. But it starts with her doing an LBRP, and then a guy shows up, and he's like, "What are you doing?" She's like, "Blah blah blah," and he's like, "She's like, she I think she says I'm doing witchcraft," and he's like, "Are you doing Wicca or Alexandrian?" And she's like, "Oh." I'm impressed. Neither, <laughs> I think I read something. But neither. That. Yeah. And I was just like, okay, if you had me as a consultant, just pay me 40 grand and I would have made that scene like so good. So good. Right. Like a couple. I'm sure you're, you're right. You're imagining right now any, uh, any number of things you could have done to make that scene a little bit better.
1: Yeah. But I wouldn't do it. I would never want to work on something so blatant as to, um, uh, that's one thing I, I kind of feel like
0: you've clearly never like would, paid film money. Film money, is <laughs>
1: yeah, uh, maybe if I could be tired and write all the time, I might actually change my mind. That Dude, when someone, when someone when someone gives you
0: twenty, thirty grand for two weeks of work, you just say yes.
1: It'd have to be yeah, <laughs> you, you say yes.
0: <laughs> Come on, man, you say yes. Of
1: course, I'm a stubborn. You. I'm a stubborn motherfucker. <laughs> What's your
0: sign, man? <laughs> you
1: wouldn't believe, like Robert. um Leo Aquarius rising, basically made <laughs> oh, stubborn.
0: shit no I'm an Aquarius so no wonder we're getting along right Leo mm-hmm. plus Aquarius times two that's 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 a that's formula for for magic
1: you'd um, at least have to pay me more than my day job and <laughs>
0: <laughs> what's your day job
1: uh it's the most boring thing you could it's like I I almost don't even want to say it um, for somebody living in Seattle it's not only the most boring thing but it's kind of the thing that's ruined the city you um, so I feel very really bad I'm big the, no, that would be so much better. Um, oh my God. No, I, I work as in tech. I'm a programmer.
0: Oh, shit. Well,
1: yeah. Someone I needs like, to make money. It's like, yeah. It, it's good. I like it. I enjoy it. Um, I don't work around a lot of tech bros, which helps. I, I tend to, um, I don't know. I, I think because tech bros basically hate me, so that I don't ever get those interviews. Um, what? And I end up working at these places that are, oh, yeah, totally. Um, so I work at places that are, a little more uh, relaxed and, um, I don't know, less objectionable. But I don't know. I feel like that's the most boring part of my personality. <laughs> I work as a programmer. Everything else is all, like, obscure and, and, and different. And then it's like, oh, but I work as a programmer in Seattle, like every other person in Seattle.
0: Hey, you're ahead of the curve. The rest of us have to apparently learn to code.
1: No, that's a myth. There's a there's a whole thing about how um, Douglas Rushkoff wrote a book called uh, Code or Be Coded. Um, oh, I like that, and that's, that's become this kind of mystique about like, oh, you have to learn how to program. And it's like, sure, you know, learn how to program, but it, it's really there's not really all that much you can really. Um, if I didn't know how to program and I wasn't doing it for a living, I I wouldn't learn how. I just I just get free apps, <laughs> and then other people did. Um, yeah i don't know i've never really been convinced as a person that's been working in tech for about 20 years uh it just doesn't convince me i don't think the the code or be coded thing
0: so have you heard of something called html
1: what you made that up
0: <laughs> i'm taking the piss i just taking the piss um, yeah my top student is a, is a coder as well and he actually i think just got out of his main thing and he's into like Crypto and stuff like that now. And yeah. crazy stuff going on. Do you, do you have any thoughts on like the whole Robin Hood
1: shit? Oh, not really. I've been kind of vaguely half-watching it and seeing it as it's kind of amusing. Um, I mean, you know, there's a party I I certainly am always rooting for the underdog no matter what. So I'm just like, yeah. Get those billionaires or whatever, but I don't. I don't really know enough about it to even be able to comment on it. Okay, um, so
0: you don't like because how <laughs> crazy is it that a, a, a app called Robinhood, designed to let yeah. the little guy play at play in the big leagues, shut down the little guy's ability to trade a stock and make money, and only would let them sell? That's crazy. Like, well, it mean, was
1: certainly not designed to handle what was what what happened. Basically, yeah. Uh, and it. I mean, there are other places where people um, that don't make a lot of money can get into out of the ground floor too. And Robinhood is not the only place. It's not like that, that killed the whole thing.
0: Do you have any crypto? No, I don't have any. Mm-mm. Okay. So you're a coder with no crypto. Do you, is that? I, I'm
1: a, I'm a Luddite programmer, basically. <laughs> I, I, I pretty much live in the coal cellar. A Luddite, um, Luddite is a, it usually is a term. I know what a means, Luddite um, is. Anti-technology. But a Luddite, a Luddite programmer is, is like, I kind of barely know how to use my phone. <laughs> Like I'm just not that into technology. It's really so, weird that I'm into programming.
0: So what do you program with?
1: Uh, not my phone. <laughs> a, a, an actual desktop computer.
0: Do you, do you write code? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. You're you're a strange creature. You so you so you know coding language, but you're not super into technology.
1: No, I've just never been into <laughs> it. Um, the older I get, the kind of less I get into it.
0: Uh, oh, dude, I like you more and really... more, man. <laughs> That's awesome.
1: <laughs> yeah, it so is just like a day job. It's, <laughs> it's pretty much...
0: Hey, we, you need a day job to afford doing magic.
1: Well, the nice thing about it is it's really nice to not have to ever worry about money. So... Uh, I had talked <laughs> before about how we do our initiations in, it's in a
0: Masonic nice to, That's the quote from this podcast. Well, I mean, I do it really is nice to idea. not ever have to worry about money.
1: Yeah, it would be nice. But um, for the things that I do that really mean something, um, the money's there. It's there for my day job. Uh right. So I rent out a Masonic Temple um, to do the initiations. I do rent they charge space you? In it. They totally do. What? And I charge the people that are getting initiated, but I always lose money on it. What do you charge um, Sometimes them? a lot of money. Whatever the rental fee is, which changes depending on uh, how long it's been. and uh, 250 bucks for the whole day for the rental hall.
0: Oh, that's not bad.
1: It's not too bad. And then the closet is not that much either. Um, But it's nice to not have to worry about funding it. Like, I don't have to be like, okay, I have to make sure to charge students X amount. uh, And if I don't, if they can't pay, or if I do the math wrong, I'm underwater. None of that, I don't don't worry about any of that. It's like, if, if students can't pay... Whatever, I make good money at a tech job. I'll cover it, and uh, I'll let them borrow the money. And if they can't pay me back, I won't die. You know, um, I, I can get it. And the same is true of publishing. You know, I don't I don't expect to make money on writing, and I'm really really happy to not have to expect it. Um, I know that in order to support my lifestyle with writing, I would have to sell so much that it, it would just it, like it's not going to happen. Um, so I don't look to writing to make money, uh, and it's nice to have some some backup. You know. A day exactly. job that takes care of that, so I, I don't even have to think about money in terms of, of writing. I can lose money, and it doesn't matter.
0: It's, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. I had to raise the dues at Temple Tahuti when I was in charge, mm-hmm. and and it caused a revolt, like an actual revolt. Um, oh, yeah. But I was like, look, I, it, it, we were we were charged nothing. We were like like. A lot of people have heard that I lived at Temple Tahuti, that I lived at a Golden Lawn Temple. was like our temp- We had two temples in it. They were 3,000 square feet, accessible 24-7, seven days a week, with classes five days a week, initiations once a week, ceremonies once a week, all that stuff. But like, a lot of people thought that that meant that I was smooth sailing. It's like, no. What it meant was that that the overages of the expenses were... <laughs> were drawing out of my student loans <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. that place was kept afloat by my student loans motherfuckers <laughs> like you know, I know it's, it's, it's not like i was up that's not gonna hurt you <laughs> so yeah i'm a big fan of magical groups charging everyone involved enough to stay afloat like come on people it makes sense Um
1: yeah we just charge for the temple use uh and i feel like you know I would be willing to do that for free, but I would just kind of feel like a sucker if I was paying to initiate people and be like, yeah. uh, I don't really yeah do want to be that much of a sucker. I'll be kind yeah. of a sucker. I'm cool with that, but not there's there's a limit. Uh, exactly. Anyway, let's see. we're coming up on uh, ten o'clock. I am gonna have to eat in about ten minutes here, but All right. but uh, we got got a little like ten more minutes or so.
0: Sounds good. Sounds good. All right. Well, now I'm on the spot. I don't even know what to ask you next. You asked me a question.
1: Uh, Oh, you know what I was going to do? I was going to talk about the Acephalic Imperial, um, which I never really had. So that that story is kind of uh, inspired by uh, people like Alfred Hitchcock and Patricia Highsmith, who wrote The Talisman, Mr. Ripley. Um, In a way, it's kind of like a suspense story, um, except there's no trace of anything like murder or violence in it. I took all of that out. Um, the story involves a, uh, woman probably in her younger twenties that, uh, it opens up, she's interviewing for a position as a live-in maid, um, at, a, in a kind of a big house decorated in a very old style, um, somewhere in Europe. Uh, and she's being interviewed and the interviewer is this old guy and he, he lives in the house and, uh, he says, well, we don't really need a, a live-in maid. We actually have a maid and we have a cook. Um, what this position is for is something entirely different. Um, but I can't really put it into words exactly what it is. I can demonstrate by way of of a little test, if you're willing. And she's like, well, okay, sure. And he says, okay, I'm going to leave the room, and I want you to steal something in this room. You can hide it somewhere in the room. You can put it in your handbag. You can do whatever you want with it. Uh, When I come back, I want you to be exactly as you were when I left the room, Uh, and that'll be your, that's technically, that's your interview. And, And the woman is like, hell, yes. You know, the whole prospect just completely excites her and and draws her in and intrigues her um so he leaves the room and she does something borderline unacceptable um which she thinks is kind of crossing the line that he's established i won't say what it is and then he comes back and he doesn't even mention uh he doesn't even ask you know what what she's taken um and he says well do you think this will be a position that you might you might find of interest and she's like yes absolutely sign me up and that's kind of the beginning and it, it just kind of charts uh, what happens when she when she works in the place so it gets deeper and deeper and deeper and more and more and more occult it's called the acephalic imperial uh, acephalic means headless uh, in a sense it refers to the headless one who is the bornless one it also refers to the uh, group apha uh, oh man I, suddenly it's slipping the acephalic group of, uh, of George bataille um, which who was a kind of um, Kind of vaguely linked to the Surrealist and started this kind of vaguely occult, atavistic Dionysian group uh, that use the Headless One uh, as their, their kind of icon. Um, it's also really uh, involved with the icon of the double-headed eagle, which is of course bicephalic as opposed to acephalic. so it's got all of these themes that um, kind of come into play more and more and more as the story gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, the the kind of mystery of of what exactly the guy that uh, hired this person is doing and why why he hired her for this bizarre position gets deeper and deeper and deeper and anyway that's that's kind of my my overview but uh, anyway I just thought since I was gonna um, yeah recommend one book I should give some kind of description and...
0: yeah well I think people should read your book and like you once mm-hmm. I read some of your uh, fiction I definitely want to do another one of these
1: yeah yeah definitely yeah. Um, yeah.
0: And I uh, really, I'm all I really about... can't wait till I can cross the border and drive down there because you're only two hours away. Oh yeah, yeah. Which is nothing. That's nothing. After I'm we're just, all vaccinated. I, oh my, yeah. Get our genomes changed, here. our DNA changed. <laughs> oh, I know. If I can
1: go to a bar and drink with people. I'll get a covered shot in my eyeball if I have to. <laughs> really?
0: Yeah. You mentioned. I saw on your Facebook. You're like you're going to make an art of having cocktails. And talking to people face to face when this is all over. But you know, they're saying this is not gonna be over. Like all the billionaires are saying, look, we've got a plan now, we got a new pandemic every five years. This is the new normal. Like they're saying this. They're saying
1: it could be. In the short term anyway, it's a matter of getting vaccinated. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, you know, there's there's those people who are like, Oh, this virus was released intentionally.
1: Yeah, and, then they're, like,
0: and then they're like, therefore we shouldn't wear masks. But here's what I think: hmm. if you think the virus is released intentionally, and that they're releasing new viruses all the time intentionally, wouldn't that make you think you should definitely wear a mask? Kinda would think so,
1: yeah. Because
0: <laughs> it's even like, more. yeah, even more. Like it's like, wait, how can you think they're releasing the virus intentionally, and then be like, oh, and it's not real? Like, like, like that would make you know, I don't know. <laughs> It's nuts, man. I just I just hope we can cross... I hope I can get back to the States sometime soon, but...
1: Yeah, that'll open Ugh. up soon. It'll happen. It's, I mean, you know. who knows? We might have environmental devastation in a couple of years, you know, like... We're aliens. But in the, in the short term, I think we'll be okay. Yeah. Maybe.
0: Do you have any thoughts so. on aliens? <laughs> Let's Not wrap up with aliens.
1: Really. No aliens. thoughts? Yeah. You have no thoughts I on mean, aliens? The only thing I can even think of to say about aliens, um, was. <laughs> Because the U.S. admitted
0: is, they have craft made not on this planet.
1: Well, I don't know if they put it exactly that way. They literally uh, said... I, I have friends that have, are very much into aliens. Okay, okay, but, uh,
0: okay. What, yeah, and then know
1: way mean, more than I do.
0: Tell me, tell um, me what you think.
1: I don't know what I think. I I, I, don't, I don't really have too many thoughts on it. Um, all my thoughts about aliens are tangents. Uh, there's a guy that I know, um, he's a friend of a friend, uh, recently passed away, unfortunately, um, and uh, he had spent kind of much of his lifetime trying to convince people that he was completely insane. And he was very much an artist in that regard. Uh, and he was um, getting assistance. He, he had come down with some kind of disease and he didn't really have any money and he was having mental problems. And, and so he was getting um, social workers coming to his house and everything uh, to, to get him assistance. Uh, of course, he would just completely mess with the social workers as much as he could possibly, possibly do. And, and uh, he was very clever about it. Um, and one of the things that I remember him saying was, you know, the, the thing you have to remember about me is that I talked to aliens. Uh, and so this woman's like, okay, well, we can give you this kind of med- medication and that, that will make those kind of voices go away. And he said, well, so if I take the medication and the voices don't go away, does that mean the aliens are real? Uh, and he just kind of kept pushing and pushing and pushing with it. And And social worker after social worker apparently left his house early, just unable to deal with this guy. <laughs>
0: well, yeah, I don't know. I, I sometimes You I know, wonder. most of my
1: thoughts about aliens are actually encapsulated by Stanislav Lem, who's a science fiction writer, Czech, I think. Czech or Polish, I don't remember exactly, science fiction writer. Uh, and he wrote a series of books. Uh, Solaris is one of them. Um, wow. And uh, he wrote a series of books that are about uh, contact with aliens, but the theme of the books are that alien life and alien intelligence will be so completely different than human intelligence – then we will have absolutely no point of contact with them whatsoever I have no way of understanding them uh, and they won't have any way of understanding us and um, the book Solaris is fantastic the uh, Tarkovsky um, movie uh, version of the of the book uh, is very good as well and you you get kind of a sense from that but it's not not as much as you do from the book um and then of course the George Clooney version you could just completely skip um took solving all all yeah, that ideas was a, that was a weird movie but um but I find, that, I find that compelling and that corresponds with kind of what I've thought about the possibility of, ability of aliens ever since I was a teenager. Um, I mean, who's to say that they would even occupy the same spectrum as we do? I, I think it's far more likely that they could be here now. And we just can't even, we just have no point of correspondence. You know, we, we have no way of, of grasping, them, grasping them at all and, or even really being aware of them. Uh, just because they're so different than we are.
0: You know, when when you bring in the multidimensional approach, it really makes it complicated.
1: Yeah. I think the idea of, like, these kind of vaguely humanoid creatures is just a very naive, like, why would they be like that, of all the different possibilities? Well, but Um, here's the
0: thing, right? There's all these witnesses seeing them, like, land and get out of ships and talk to school kids and stuff.
1: But how do you know that's literal? I mean, that could be what our brains do to, to make sense of it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I talk to spirits, and I don't think that there's some, like, you know, spirit house somewhere where these guys live in smoke you pipes. you got to do DMT, man. <laughs> like,
0: you got to do DMT. Yeah. And then you come down to Seattle, I, and we're going to do a bunch of DMT. and then, I mean, I, I totally believe that spirits humans. are real, but
1: I, I just don't think they're necessarily real in the way that we see them. I think that we tend to clothe them. Uh, same thing is true of, of deities. I think we tend to... Uh, Give them form, because that helps our, our little meat brains, you know, kind, exactly, of, kind of deal right? with it.
0: Exactly, right, because the thing that science is still figuring out is perception and, and our interrelationship with perceptual reality. We know it's more right. complicated than we understand it to be, but we don't know how. And that's very problematic, isn't it?
1: Oh, yeah. Who's this philosopher? Is it Bertrand Russell?
0: Yeah, Bertrand Russell. It's
1: Bertrand Russell. Yeah, he's... Um, he kind of destroyed my idea that you can ever trust your senses about anything ever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Back in my twenties, uh, and I, I mean, it just from a very common sense standpoint. Uh, anyway, I've got to go eat here. I'm starting absolutely to see food coming from the kitchen.
0: Absolutely. Well, um, regards to your lady, and if she does ever want to talk about uh, Haitian magic with me, I would be super honored, super honored. But uh, awesome. Yeah. So have a great dinner. And, uh, thank you, Damien. Yeah. Thanks for,
1: thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah. What a treat. Um, send me some links, uh, that I can post for people and any bio you want and, uh, and all of that. And we'll talk again after I've read some of your work and hopefully I can make it down to Seattle before long. We can, you know, do a watchtower together and get up some, to some shenanigans over cocktails.
1: Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. I'll send you some links. Hallelujah. Amen. All right. Signing off. Ciao, bro. See ya.
0: Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature, as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, golden dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information, to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk.